When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Aegon's destruction of Heron, his line, and his castle was huge by itself. But when we put it all together with the events of the few centuries that preceded it, things get even more interesting. And in turn, the conquest and the rebirth of the Riverlands itself does as well. It's a rare glimpse at the Game of Thrones playing out prior to the formation of the Seven Kingdoms under the Iron Throne. We've got a host of the usual suspects in the Riverlands and the Stormlands. Blackwoods, Brackens, Durandins, also the Face Militant. Did I say the Face Militant? The Faith Militant. The Face Militant. They have very (laughs) militant faces. (laughs) And when the Ironborn joined the fray, we've got an early mention of what might be the same dream slash prophecy that Aegon himself had. So today we'll go back in order to go forward because we have ample reason to do so. All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome back, everybody. We are here every, almost every 3 p.m. Eastern on YouTube for our live streams. Afterwards, those get posted on YouTube uh, or rather and Spotify. So you can always see the video on YouTube and you can see the video on Spotify and you can catch the podcast version also on Spotify or anywhere you catch podcasts, whether that's iTunes or pod. What's that place called? <laughs> pod, any podcatcher. I'm forgetting the name. Worth now. saying it's every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern, not every 3 p.m. We do not stream. Did I say every 3 p.m.? You Damn. did say every 3 p.m., but we do not stream. Right, you day. said it. We have to do yep. it now. Okay. You said it. I just, I just seven X our schedule yeah. <laughs> with, with a careless sentence. No, I think, speaking of careless sentences, I think the face militant is clowns. Because, <laughs> yes, that's clowns. Yes, they're the militant faces. Anyway, thanks for the corrections. Yeah, yes, every Sunday at 3. And because we're putting up the videos on Spotify, the release date's a little longer. It's not usually up on Monday these days, but that's okay. It's up on Tuesday or Wednesday, and you get just as much time to enjoy it before the next one comes out. And if you catch us on Patreon, yeah, it's ad-free. That's nice. Ad-free, spo- and it doesn't have ums and uhs. That's right. We do extra editing, so it's a little tighter. You lose some of the visuals, but you get a tighter edit. That's the trade-off. So how you doing, Sean? You got uh, What is that on your shirt? I see. I can't make it out. Oh, I see. You got a... a that's a tree, right? It's an image from uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, One nice. of the characters' sons was buried, and he went to visit the grave of this tree. Well, that's sad. Hmm. Yeah, it was a touching moment. I, I have just a regular old House of the Dragon sigil here, or Targaryen House of the Dragon sigil. Well, it's got Blackfire and yeah. Dark Sister swords cro- right. crossed above it. I think it's not so regular. I love that. That's it. true. You're right. It's not so regular. It's uh, it's official. It's an official shirt. That's official. what makes it regular, that it's yeah, not fan-made yeah. or anything. Yeah, that's true. I, I will say that my shirt, this moment, reminds me of uh dunk and arlen yeah, yeah that is what it made me think of as Same. well uh, when you were describing it my shirt y'all can't see it i feel like i wear this shirt frequently during streams it's a game of owns shirt our, our good friends at game of owns gave me the shirt years ago and i i feel like 
every time I stream, I'm like, what shirt am I wearing? Game of Bones. <laughs> I think they're doing a Duncan Egg reread right now, aren't they? Yeah, they sure are. <laughs> Perfect. Shout out to our good friend Nina. Her blog is goodqueenally.tumblr.com. That's one L in Alley. Her latest post is very relevant to what we're talking about today, a comparison between Shiera Blackwood and Argella Durandon. Now, Shiera Blackwood, you may not know that name. You know the name Shiera, and you know the name Blackwood. But you may not know this particular individual. She comes up in the world of Ice and Fire, and she's going to come up today. Argella Durandon, of course, is the daughter of Argalak the Arrogant, who will be getting into more detail in, in an episode or two when we talk about the Battle of the Last Storm and the campaign against the Stormlands during the Conquest. So her comparison will perhaps mean a little more after you've listened to those episodes. But if you want a preview, check it out now. And there's lots of other great posts on Nina's blog as well that are relevant to our recent episodes or not. Some of them are, some of them aren't. I do want to bring attention to my drink this week. I'm having Mighty Water. Oh, look at that. It's green and purple. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Green Machine Naked Drink mixed with Watermelon Red Bull and Dr. Pepper. And I was trying to make it as murky and muddy as I could for the representation of the Riverlands. So. <laughs> the Trivia Hangout this month will be Tuesday the 26th at 9 Eastern. It's going to be a Jeopardy-style trivia game with a grid of questions. If you, uh, you can join through Discord and access the game using your browser. And it's going to be, if you're a patron, you can play. We, we're doing the test. Maybe in the future we'll be able to open up for more people. Uh, but that's an incentive for you to join our Patreon. If you want to play some Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones trivia, the questions will be written by me. So if that's extra incentive, then uh, join us or email us for more questions if you're curious about how it's going to work. Yep, just join the Discord and you'll get more information. That's right. There's a link to join the Discord in both the uh, link of the video and we'll make sure it's in the link for the podcast as well, which I don't think we usually do, so we'll, we'll put that in. All right, our trivia question, speaking of trivia, our trivia question for today, who is the first character in A Song of Ice and Fire to say blood and fire? To say blood and fire, not necessarily, because sometimes people think it, right? It's sometimes part of the narrative. And I, I'm not saying fire and blood, no, I'm saying blood and fire. So, fire and blood, blood and fire. Who's the first person to say blood and fire? Yes. It's a little surprising. Is it the... Is it the first person chronologically to utter those words or the first time we got it in the book? Good question. First person to utter it in the books going through that order. Yes, the first person to utter it chronologically, as far as I know, is in this episode. So good catch, Sean. I, that may have been why you pointed that out. <laughs> Very yes. sneaky yes. of you, yes. <laughs> So let's start with the, we're going to start in the, with right where we picked off and then we're going to wiggly, wiggly, wiggly jump back in time. But we'll start with this quote at the aftermath of Heron Hall. Heron and his last sons died in the fires that engulfed his monstrous fortress that night. House Hor died with him, and so too did the Iron Islands hold on the Riverlands. The next day, outside the smoky ruins of Heron Hall, King Aegon accepted an oath of fealty from Edmund Tully, Lord of Riverrun, and named him Lord Paramount of the Trident. The other river lords did homage as well to Aegon as king and to Edmund Tully as their liege lord. Weeks, if not months later, the castle was still hot. And we know that when Torrin Stark shows up there later, he, it's still going to be smoldering. And this is maybe when this talk of burning ghosts begins. Certainly couldn't have started before the castle was burned. Don't know that it started right away, but yeah, maybe it didn't happen until people started living there. But people may have already started talking about the curse because of just the 
dramatic fall of Heron and the way the story was being told the day the Aegon landed was the day the castle finished, all these things. That's the kind of thing people would start talking right away. But anyway, what a place to give homage, right? <laughs> I, I wonder a little bit about that, by the way, if George had any ideas in his mind of, uh, of Chernobyl, the idea of this massive construct that had been burned almost fantastically still smoldering cursed land still doing harm yeah yeah i i agree with that possibility i don't know if it's also sort of a lesson to to Mm, future people you know lots of parallels whether he thought or not i I like to draw the parallels i like the lesson aspect of it too because we've certainly talked about that quite a bit you're right that's a great point and i think we've used that metaphor of chernobyl in other areas of west of not westeros but of planetos because we've put that out as an uh, as a possibility for Ashai for what went wrong there, mm-hmm. as well as for Mantaris. We've used the Chernobyl uh, example for both of those. Some sort of permanent, long-lasting damage that causes mutations. And maybe we don't have the mutations here at Harrenhal, but we have some strange things that, that work uh, for that metaphor. Yeah, that's a great catch. So it's a strange place to give homage. You're, you're bending the knee in front of the largest castle ever. And it's on fire or smoldering mm-hmm. and really hot. And you're you're well cowed, I think, by or awed by what just did this. Uh, the dragon Balerion probably just sitting there, you know, chilling, eating an entire aurochs in one bite, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I hadn't considered that part of the image that Balerion would be present for this. Yeah, I mean, right? Like you're bowing to the king, but you're rec- acknowledging and he's probably acknowledging that the one of the reasons he is king is because of Balerion <laughs> and that's who did the damage there on this castle. So, yeah, a reminder of what who who bears the great weapon here. And by the way, we're going to have to think about this later, but I want to set the stage now. Magor. Magor did a lot of this demonstrative burning and destructive things, but he did it for the wrong reason. He didn't do it for reasons that, that were as cunning and nuanced as, as his father. Aegon used destruction as a deterrent, whereas Magor did it as a challenge to his enemies. He's like, ah, what's up? You know, uh-huh, I burned your thing. Come get me. You know, like this was Aegon did this as like the, the exclamation point, the period, the ending, you know. But Megor did it to, like, cause more harm, to fire his enemies up, to get them mad and to, yeah. Megor went after things that were popular, made himself the one who was hated, where Aegon destroyed the things that were hated to make himself popular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Aegon destroyed his foes, Megor destroyed his friends. So Megor d- did a lot of the same things, but for very different reasons and, and, and didn't have the same thought processes, so... Just a little tidbit of preparing for that, because, of course, it's going to be a little while before we get to Magor. Aegon's reign is long, and and Magor, of course, isn't the second king. He's the third. And, of course, (laughs) he had Visenya for a mother, which I'm not sure is the the best thing to grow up peaceful and and friendly. (laughs) Anyway, we'll have time for Magor when the time comes. Let's rein it back into the timeline we're focused on at the minute. Actually, no, let's not. Let's go back, as I said. Wiggly, wiggly, wiggly back in time for some fun additional context to when the Riverlands was last self-ruled. Now, side note, as we begin our Riverlands flashback, we did two episodes on the history of the Riverlands, but it was so long ago that the World of Ice and Fire wasn't even out yet. So those episodes aren't up anymore. We took them down quite a while back. There's a part three that's still up because it's just the current times, which we didn't need the World of Ice and Fire or Fire and Blood to talk about. We might say a few things differently since it's been so long. But other, but the information wasn't out of date when we said it. 
Now, of course, we're coming back to this topic, but we didn't. Well, I have a question. Yeah. If do do folks have access to that if they're patrons? Like, does anyone have access that one? To I it? don't think so. Okay, I was just kind of curious yeah. if it was in um, our like archive. Like, if someone did was really it a might be on the Patreon. Fanatic, they actually. might be able to find it. It, it might be actually. I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway, it's an argument that you know. I, 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 I think it out. predates our Patreon. That's how. Yeah, old I think it, is, it does so. predate our Patreon, but I feel that I think that in our episode searcher in the database, it might be cataloged there. Anyways, some of I, you would have seen it way back. Probably then, like if you're a patron or something, and you're like, I'm dying to hear this like really inaccurate episode, and like go back <laughs> in time and have a time lapse. We're like, yeah, we could do that. We just don't want like people accessing our content and being like this thinking that's our quality level yeah yeah but just to be clear uh, some people might be interested <laughs> if we i was gonna say if we redid the riverlands it might be neat to compare and contrast those old episodes yeah. but we're we're almost doing a redoing the riverlands right now right here yep. so. yeah at least this historical part because when we did the world of ice and fire coverage we never we didn't do the whole book we didn't do every single thing we realized we were we we're just picking topics and covering them, and a lot of those came from the World of Ice and Fire, but there wasn't any read to call it, need to call it Valaritas because we weren't going in any kind of order. We're doing a little bit of that here, but it's not a regular thing here. And we didn't get to this part of the World of Ice and Fire, which was the long history of the Riverlands. So anyway, let's talk about that, which it reminds us that Heron's vassals amongst the Riverlords, they turned on him. When they turned on him, they were merely following a tradition of sorts. This kind of thing of the river lords fighting amongst each other or whoever was in charge, whether it was an insider or an outsider, was very common. Though I doubt Heron himself would have bothered to learn this or cared if he actually did. Anyway, here's what the World of Ice and Fire has to say about that. Quote, In all the long history of the Trident, under hundreds of rulers, there was hardly ever a time when the river folk were not at war with at least one of their neighbors. Sometimes they were forced to fight upon two or even three fronts at once. Worse, few of the River Kings ever enjoyed the full support of his own Lord's Bannermen. Memories of ancient wrongs and bygone betrayals were not oft put aside by the Lords of the Trident, whose enmities ran as deep as the rivers that watered their lands. Time and time again, one or more of these river lords would join with some invader against their own king. Indeed, in some cases, it was these very lords who brought the outsiders into the riverlands, offering them lands or gold or daughters for their help against familiar foes. Many a river king was toppled by such alliances, and each new battle only served to set the stage for another to follow. With hindsight, it is plain to see that it was only a matter of time until one of the invaders chose to stay and claim the Riverlands for his own. Yeah, I mean, think about it. If you think of the biggest rivalry, house versus house in Westeros, let alone the Riverlands, you think of Bracken Blackwood, most likely. That comes to the top of my mind anyway. I imagine most of you all are the same. It's the example of a long-standing blood feud, just unbelievably long that it's been running. But apparently that attitude is supported within the Riverlands, which is full of feuds and long-running grudges and long memories and stubbornness and lack of forgiveness and things like that. So yeah, it's a very bloody region for a lot of reasons, and that's one of the reasons as well that it's rarely united because of this long-running enmities, these grudges, these, so, you know, 
things that they don't forget. You might say the phrase with the only ones with water under the bridge. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's funny to you point that out, too, because the phrase would be relatively new on the scene, especially at this point that we're getting into. They probably weren't that big a deal yet. They are, they're only about 600 years old as a house. And right now we're going 300 years. The conquest is 300 years prior to the current times, right? The books are 300 years after the conquest, roughly. And we're 400 years before that. So actually, yeah, no, we're, we're 100 years before House Frey. So we are in the pre-Frey times of the Riverlands here, y'all. Is it before they existed or before they built their, their toll bridge? They may have existed, but they didn't have a castle. So they're, they're, they built the bridge 600 years ago, a wooden bridge, and then just with a little keep on each side, and those were wooden also. And now, now they're both, now all of it's stone, the bridge and the, the castles. So yeah, it's been a nice uh, run for them. So if you've been, it is a little humorous or ironic or whatever to hear you say they're only six hundred. Yeah, they're only three times older than America. <laughs> <laughs> so if you knew, if you've been paying close attention or are well read on the subject already, you know that it, we're not talking about the Ironborn in terms of inviting an outside conqueror. They were not invited. <laughs> they were uh, unfortunately supported by some river lords, but they weren't like, hey. Harwin Hardhand, come here. Nope, that's not what happened. But it is similar to what happened here. Like Aegon, Heron's grandfather took the Riverlands away from a different conqueror. So let's start with who it was taken away from. When the Riverlands ruled, it la ruled itself last, the title was actually called the King of the Rivers and Hills, as opposed to Heron, who was the King of the Isles and Rivers. And the Teagues were originally, who are the ruling house, House Teague. They were originally called the King of the Trident, but they eventually became King of the Rivers and Hills. Because they expanded their domains and maybe increased their prestige. And uh, the borders with the West are hilly. So some of those areas have been kind of a neutral zone. Sort of a sometimes it belongs to the Riverlands. Sometimes it belongs to the West. And those, those hills mark that border. So sometimes those hills are part of the Riverlands. If you recall, Rob, when he was named king, several people shouted king of the Trident because it was like an ancient title being brought back again that they remembered. They wouldn't have said King of the Rivers and Hills <laughs> to Rob at that point. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this is the final king that we're going to... Uh, well, not really. The final reign. Technically, there's more kings because, you know, sometimes someone king dies in battle and then their son immediately becomes king and then they die like five minutes later. We've got that sort of scenario here. So technically, there were several more kings after Humphrey Teague, Humphrey the First Teague, but they didn't really rule. So 700 years prior to A Song of Ice and Fire, this Humphrey Teague had a lot in common with Baylor the Blessed. He wasn't frail like Baylor, and he didn't have any problem having children, but he was extremely pious and spent a lot of his reign founding new seps and mother houses. This might have made the local old gods worshippers a bit anxious, and for good reason, because he really did have a, a target painted on them. You can pretty easily guess which house would be the most concerned. That's right, the Blackwoods. Lord Roderick Blackwood might have seen this problem coming ahead of time. Or perhaps he was just playing the Game of Thrones the way it's often played, which is, you know, get as much power as you can. He married one of his daughters to Storm King Arlen III. Arlen, yeah. We always talk about King of the Hill somehow in this show. <laughs> and it might have been a double marriage because Lord Blackwood's daughter, Shiera, there's Shiera Blackwood that we mentioned at the outro, or the intro, rather. She married King Arlen's son as well. So two marriages of Blackwood to Durandin. 
that's pretty interesting. Blackwood's not super close to Durandon. They're on the other side of the Red Fork. It's not that close. They're not in the same kingdom. So it's kind of interesting that this happened. It's not, not just one marriage, but two. It's, it implies a very tight connection, uh, more than just an alliance. Uh, it looks like they had plans together. This was not King Ireland's first marriage, which you may have figured that out by the, the fact that a, a son and a daughter married <laughs> this guy and his son. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> how far apart could they all be? Anyway, Ireland may have regarded the old gods well because he actually got married at... Uh, he married Lord Blackwood's daughter at Raven Tree Hall in front of the dead Werewood because the Werewood was still dead back then, 700 years ago, which is kind of a neat little detail. Usually what we see is the bride marrying the husband at his castle because she's joining that house, right? That's usually how it works. In fact, that's the overwhelming majority. So the king of the Stormlands getting married outside the Stormlands is pretty interesting, especially because this is a separate kingdom. This isn't like in West, like modern Westeros, where if the Lannister marries a Baratheon, they're all, maybe they're in different regions, but it's all the seven kingdoms. It's all one, ruled by one king. This was not the case at this time, so it's even more unusual. Nina comes up with some examples of other times when this happens, because we wanted to kind of compare this and say, hey, how often do marriages happen at the bride's place? and uh, the bride's house. And there's definitely some examples, and they all have some things in common. We, it looks like we did, uncovered a bit of a pattern here. Ned and John Aaron's double marriage to Catelyn and Lysa took place at River Run. That's one example. And this was part of, uh, partly in due, uh, due to the need for speed. They were at war. They needed to get this thing done quickly. They couldn't just go have a marriage at Winterfell, have a marriage at the Vale. I mean, there was fighting in the Vale already, so, you know, and the and Winterfell is damn far away. <laughs> so I can't do that. And that's like war. the thread through... That's the thread through all these examples, yes. right? That, that basically some sort of war or immediacy was uh, necessary. But that's not the case for this blackwood Durandon marriage. They may have seen war coming. They may have been worried about it in the future. But it wasn't actively happening. No one was actually at war at the time. So they could have gone back to Storm's End and had the marriage there. There was no pressing need that we know of. So that's pretty interesting. And it may imply some politics, some symbolism, some... Mm, making some statements that the other lords would be able to see and interpret. These other examples, I don't know if you're going to run through them all, but they're almost all in the Riverlands too, mm -hmm. right? Riverlands Which are the region. I wonder if that's there. because maybe the Riverlands are quicker to abandon tradition when there is war, or maybe because they're more likely to be mixed up in war, oh, right? Yes. They're more likely to be in the cross of two entities that are coming at each other, or they themselves being split apart. So That's a good call. So yeah, let's run through these real quick. Just We don't need to linger on them, but I want to throw the examples out there. Rob married Jane Westerling at the Crag, which... Rob felt pressured into marrying her because he got her pregnant and thought that was the honorable thing to do. So that was another, like, that was a bit of a, a shotgun wedding. Do it quickly. But say he hadn't, he would have been marrying. Yes. Uh, it's, what's her name at the, at a, the he hadn't picked twins. He hadn't picked a fray yet. He was allowed to choose and he hadn't. So okay. uh, that's why you can't think of one because he hadn't chosen. Yeah. It's like, which one? <laughs> <laughs> one of those phrases. But you're right. So he also did it to avoid having to marry the one he had promised to marry and then that one did as well that one actually became Edmure marrying at the twins which Edmure didn't want to do that he wanted to do it he, he was like no why do I have to go there he argued against it and they're like dude we got to make amends <laughs> oops <laughs> so there was an ex there was an extra reason there too that was acknowledged as unusual Marjorie marrying Renly at Highgarden now that was where Renly fled in the aftermath of Cersei's coup when Renly first tried to team up with Ned and Ned rejected him. So this was also very much a matter of, of doing things quickly. He also had to out uh, be quicker than Stannis. 
it also seems like Dick and Tarly wed Eleanor Mooton at Maidenpool. That's uh, Randall Tarly's second son, but chosen heir, right? And Maidenpool was... Randall was basically ruling Maidenpool when we see him there, right? Brienne showed up and he's like, well, I thought that, uh, you know, his own knight says, it isn't this in this Lord Mooton's roof, you know? And he's like, you're fired. (laughs) 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 You can't speak to me that way. (laughs) But he made a good point. He's like, it is Lord Mooton's roof, but Randall Tarly is this brutal strong man who just kind of took over. And the same, that's why Nina put this example last because it's, a similar, maybe a similar case where someone's making a statement is like, yeah, I don't own this, but I'm kind of taking it. <laughs> I'm kind of running this thing. You know, I'm not the Lord, but I'm effectively the Lord. And I think maybe that might be what the Storm King was doing was like, you know, this isn't my territory, but I'm the highest ranking guy here. I'm going to flex a bit, that kind of thing. And Roderick Blackwood may have been happy to have him in there because he may have had ambitions. He may have on top of being worried about what was going on in the Riverlands, which is the persecution of worship of the old gods. And a lot more could be said about this if we had a better timeline of when these marriages happened. We don't even know that this double marriage happened at the same time. The second marriage between Durandon and Blackwood may have come years later. It may have been a double ceremony. It may have happened at the exact same time. That probably would have been mentioned if it was the case, but still... We're not really sure. The timeline throws us off a bit here. Either way, the Durandans having a base in, uh, an ally in the Riverlands. Let's pull up the maps so you can see what I'm talking about in terms of how they get boxed in here. Look at how the Stormlands and where the location of House Blackwood, which is in the west there of, of the Riverlands, they kind of box in the area of uh, Maidenpool, which is what we're told is the center of power for House Teague. So the king of hills and rivers had their power base in Maidenpool. Just south of them is the Stormlands, and just east of them, to the west, or just west of them, rather, is House Blackwood. So they've got them covered from south and west. Southwest is the God's Eye. There's nothing there, and there's no Hall there yet. And north is the Vale, so there's nothing there for them either. That's like a, a hard barrier. So they're kind of trapped. They're kind of cornered in by this new alliance, which may have put things to a head, pushed things to go get worse. Now, we've theorized that Baylor the Blessed might have had designs on repressing worship of the old gods, and we wonder if he was murdered, if Baylor was murdered, if that was one of the reasons why, because the, his actions were going to cause civil war. In this case, no one stopped Humphrey, and it did lead to civil war. Humphrey's repression of the old gods, it probably grew over time. There may have been some breaking point, some sort of straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know what that thing was. My favorite headcanon is the cutting down of a heart tree or two or three or something like that. Because it's not like there's some old god sept to despoil or a priest to murder, right? So the only like holy symbols they have are the heart trees. Some kind of hard for me to picture how you persecute worship of the old gods except cutting down heart trees. Like, people just go worship in silence in the godswood? What, he has a big problem with this? Well, he would cut off, cut down the tree if he had a problem with that. It's hard for me to think of what else they would do besides, like, the more traditional rounding up worshipers and killing them, which 
it doesn't sound like he did something like that. That's severe, but it's possible. There might have been some preferential treatment to knights. Okay. There might have been people who Politics, were, yeah. I don't know, honorable and trustworthy, but didn't believe in the idea of knighthood. And other people who were maybe kind of crappy, like, you know, Gregor, or maybe not even that extreme, but who got to be knights. And then because of that, they got certain benefits and other people didn't. I could see that being this sort of a, I like that a nuanced way that could uh, still end up slighting a lot of people. Yeah, right? because it's rooted in who you worship, not your personality, right. not your behavior, not like calling you to account for what you've done. It's just what team you're on. And yeah, so that would seem unfair, not just to worshippers of the old gods but to a lot of just decent folk will be like no it's not your who you worship that makes you a good person it's your actions it's like gregor clegane is a good guy like you said that's a perfect example of of that dichotomy so it could have been any number of things the the word in the, used in the text is repress though which is a pretty strong word so I, I don't think it's just i don't think it's minor so i like your example of, of political favors to worshipers and, and leaving the old gods people kind of out in the cold and what's interesting about this is it became a civil war, but it wasn't like we're going to overthrow you, Teagues. It was we're going to force you to back down. We've seen cases like this. It's not what we normally think of when we think of civil war or um, someone rising against their king. Usually think, oh, they're going to overthrow them. That's the whole point. But there's lots of examples in real history and in Westeros and elsewhere where they rose up to curb the power of the king or queen, not to overthrow them entirely. For example. That's what the original plan for Ares was within the Targaryen and the house and their allies. A lot of them were like, we're just going to force Ares out. We're not going to overthrow the Targaryens. But then things, you know, went their own direction and, and Robert and his allies, you know, Ares pushed things too far and they couldn't. Rhaegar replacing Ares no longer became possible. And instead it was Robert. But and that's kind of where this went. Very similar in that they initially were just trying to force this king to behave better, to treat their the old gods worshippers better. But at some point it pivoted into a full-blown, let's replace the Teagues with the Blackwoods. But what we're pretty sure that didn't happen until the Blackwoods were almost beaten, which is very interesting. Is why didn't they call in their Storm King allies early in the war or even halfway through the war? They waited until they were losing badly, which is like, well, why? Why didn't they do it sooner? Well, for one thing, that really heavily implies that, yeah, they weren't just trying to overthrow King Teague here. If they had really wanted to overthrow him and install a new king, they would have just brought everyone at once. They wouldn't have just made it a fight within the Riverlands. By making it a conflict within the Riverlands only, they were keeping it a Riverlands issue. Trying to keep it an internal thing. Hey, we're trying to get more rights. We're not trying to bring in an outside conqueror because if you bring in an outside army, well, you risk... The thing that happened happening, which is they decide to stay. They bring it. You you let some, you invite someone to bring 20,000, 30,000 soldiers into your domain. Well, what happens if they don't leave or if they don't want to leave? Like, you know what? I think we like it here. <laughs> also, it, it's as far as legitimacy, you earned your throne by bringing in an outside power. That's going to create long term, long standing grievances. And what did we what did we just learn about the Riverlands? It's a place of long standing grudges and people not supporting each other. If you don't do it right, you might, you're gonna find yourself toppled or dealing You might with temporarily it. get rid of the Teagues, but then you won't have respect after the fact. Yeah. Someone else will just be getting rid of you a generation later. Exactly. You've just painted a target on your head. So you they, they're very careful that they don't want to seize power if that power is going to destroy them. And and the Blackwoods having lived in the Riverlands for so very long, 
are savvy about this, at least on some level, I think they're not. Yeah, we're not just going to blindly grasp as much power as possible and then try to hold on to it after the fact. They know better. They're not. They're, they're too smart for that. Aside from all that, there's even, a, I don't know, a list of other reasons I consider just basic pride. Like, sure. we'll just do this ourselves. Yeah. Basic ignorance, not having knowledge of how big the enemy's forces or even of your own forces. A lot of times that's a, a mistake that people make is just underestimating what they can accomplish. And then maybe even after realizing it, just takes a minute to send an envoy to another land, have them come back, any kind of negotiation. You know, I can imagine like weeks of back and forth trying to convince because just imagine if someone says to you, hey, we need help. Please come to war. Like, hold down, slow down. <laughs> How many forces do you have? How many forces are you? What are we getting out of yeah, this? Yeah, what's our and end so game? So you have to yeah. send a raven to someone who's in the middle of war and then they have to like, just the logistics of communicating, we need your help. And then for the help to come, by the time all that happens, crap, we've almost lost. Yeah. So now the person coming to help is really saving you. Right? And they <laughs> expect to be rewarded for that. So it's even it's even more dangerous. The longer they waited, the more of a reward the Storm King was going to expect for bringing his assistance in. And that's uh, that's exactly what happened. So, but backing up a little bit here, another thing that may have been in the minds of some river lords is this King Teague might actually be making the right moves to lock this down in a way that's never happened before. And that might be what he was his doing with all the religious stuff, with all the pushing of the seven and building chapels and new temples or what have you. Because he got the faith militant on his side. And he may have seen that as an as an angle. He's like, hmm, the faith militant's supporting what I do. I'm a religion. I'm an eight of ten on religion, and the faith militant like that. But if I'm an eleven of ten, they'll fully back me, and they'll basically be half, my, you know, be part of my army. If will be that tight, and that might be what he did. He may have leaned into it even more. He might have been a very religious guy that took it to another level because he saw it would gain him power. It's like an extra way for his dynasty to get legitimacy. Like we're the you know, big pushers of the seven and we're, you know, we're going to make that our centerpiece of our dynasty and that's going to enable us to grow and, and, and become more powerful. It's a little bit of a different context here, but that's what the gardeners did, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, You're right. They did. It was a long time like, ago. But yeah. It's a crazy idea for him to have. We've seen it work before. So You're totally right. Yeah. And it's kind of what Aegon is doing too, right? So. so the Blackwoods rose and with them came King Humphrey. Uh, or, or rather, against King Humphrey came the Tullys and the Vances of Atranta, but not the Vances of Wayfarer's Rest, because, of course, there's two house Vances. Now, you wonder what it was for them, because they're not old gods worshippers. They may have just been more, they saw House T getting too powerful, or they saw the, the the way things were headed, and it wasn't good. A lot of reasons why they might join. It might just be, like we were talking about, the, the, the basis of honor or um, pol politics, them getting shut out of things. But either way, because one way to look at this is it's a violation of the feudal contract. I'm your I'm your vassal. You're my lord. You're supposed to protect me. You're supposed to protect, keep me safe, right? That's the basic trade-off, right? I give you taxes. I give you food. I send you soldiers for your wars. You keep me safe. You protect my honor. How is repressing my religion? How does that fit into that? It doesn't. It's a violation of that. It clear, it's a clear violation of the feudal contract. If you're repressing my religion, you're definitely not protecting me. You're telling other people my religion is bad and they're coming after me because you've validated persecution within your realm. You've said that it's okay to treat these people badly. I mean, this is something that happens in the real world. You don't have to make a law against a religion to get people fired up about attacking worshipers of that religion. 
right? You just have to denigrate it or say it's bad or say, oh, they're evil, like they're not worshiping the good religion. So this is something that plays out all throughout real history and fantasy history, and it's pretty easy to see when you frame it that way, I think. So that might might be another reason why the the Tully's or the Vance's of Atranta Rose are like, well, this this liege lord is violating the feudal contract. It's our duty to stand against that. I mean, it could be some combination of the above, of course, and the Vance's and the Tully's might have said, okay, we'll support you, but not if you bring in the Storm King. <laughs> you know, we can't have that. But things got desperate. And, well... Yeah. Roderick may have been banking on people disliking the Teagues more than they actually did. He may have expected more allies based on the way the Teagues were treating their vassals, but this didn't happen. Uh, number two, maybe... Uh, well, number two is what we had already said about the optics of calling in the Storm King, let alone the, the danger of what happens if he stays. Uh, so... The Blackwoods didn't want to lose that, you know, that the optics and, and look like the good guys. They wanted to keep themselves looking like the victims. But once they called him the Storm King, that changed. But they didn't have a choice. They were losing badly. Raven Tree Hall was besieged. So they were really, they were, they were screwed. They lost all the major battles, maybe because the Faith Militant was enough to turn the tide. But also it just sounds like more of the Riverlands supported House Teague. Because, of course... The Brackens supported House Teague against the Blackwoods. That's the most straightforward guess one could make here. And since the Vances of Atranta were on one side and not the Vances of Wayfarer's Rest, yes, indeed, the Vances of Wayfarer's Rest did take the side of the Teagues. The Dairies and Smallwoods as well did. So, and probably some others, but they're not mentioned. Maybe both sides hope for more defections. Maybe a lot of the River Lords' houses just sat out. We can suspect that there's several Riverlords houses that had grudges against both sides. <laughs> and we're like, I'm not fighting for either of them <laughs> unless they beg. And of course, no one begs. So uh, <laughs> probably not anyway. <laughs> so he, maybe Roderick underestimated some things. Maybe he overestimated other things. Either way, he found himself in a position where he had no choice but to call in the Storm King. And or did he have no choice? This is a kind of an interesting thing. Like he may could have just bent the knee and said, all right, we lost. I'll accept this punishment. And this is one of those things where uh, it, it gets kind of real, where someone something is turned evil, something is turned corrupt, but it's so powerful that people don't want to give up on it. They want to keep it. They want to keep using it. And this this thing that's causing harm to society, to culture, to a kingdom continues because the people are the people who own it are benefiting too much from it to give it up, even though it's causing such great harm. Now, that is so that's what the Blackwoods did. They decided rather than face the music, rather than face this zealous king that might take full opportunity to punish them more thoroughly than they might otherwise deserve because of the religious differences, they called in the Storm King. He came quickly. Uh, he may have already been ready. We're told he gathered his army quickly and, and showed up. It's, the timeline doesn't really support the way things go. It's described like, did they really wait till they were besieged to then ask for help? Then he called his banners. Then he marched all the way there and they were still besieged. I I'm thinking there's a little bit of looseness here, intentional looseness by the sources because they wouldn't have the precise details probably. That adds to my thought earlier that they've been trying for a minute and the details just weren't hammered out yet. Yeah. That's why it seems like it all happened so suddenly because really it had been planned out for weeks. Yes. Yeah. Good point. 
And if we think again of, of like Tywin, if we think again of Robert's Rebellion, which is such a great model for th- some of the things that are happening here, including the reasons people go to war. I mean, look at why, look, Ares violated the feudal contract. He executed some lords for very little and then demanded more dead lords, children lords for just for the crime of being related to them. And John Aaron's like, well, that's evil. Uh, I'm rising up against that. Plenty of people still supported Ares, even though he was clearly doing, violating the rules for a king, like breaking the contract. So obviously people will still support the king, even when he's a mad, murderous, you know, evil guy breaking his own rules. Um, so maybe because Black one, expected more people would be upset about that, but no. <laughs> if they haven't done it to you, right, yeah. it's a little easy, like, well, that's what those Northmen get or whatever. Uh, and and also, it's not like the king doesn't have an army. It's not like it's not. Yeah, it's not an easy decision to go to war. No, even when it's quote unquote correct. Yeah, there's still a lot of risk. There's still well, and it's, it comes up a lot in modern times. Like people are like, well, you expect people who work for a company that's doing wrong things to stand up to that company. Well, it's 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 almost harder for people who work within the company to stand up to that company because they get fired. Like for me, a, c- a consumer of the product, it's very easy for me to complain and be like, I'm never buying your product again. But for someone who works, it's like, I'm never working here again. Like you're giving up your job. That's, that's rough. Like that's, that's simple. And this is even bigger because you're giving up your life potentially to, to take a, to, to, right. to do or the right thing. Someone else's life. Yeah. Cause even the idea, like maybe you should be willing to give up your job rather than work for a crappy company. But are you also going to like your wife and your kids or your yeah, husband? It's not just you. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly you can't feed your family anymore. And that's just in modern times when there's wealth and safety nets. Back then, this is like you're going to war. Like you're going to send a whole village to be slaughtered. Like yeah. every able-bodied man in a village is going to go to be slaughtered. That's what happens when you go to war. And the only one with the safety net is the one saying, yes, let's go to war. Because the lords can often expect to to bend the knee and give away their child as a hostage rather than themselves. So they, they're the ones that have the least to lose in some ways because, yes, maybe they can lose a ton of power. They, have, they can lose power that, that no one that's following them even has in the first place. But they're, light. they're not risking their life in the same sense. Although they are. They're going to battle. So they are risking it in some ways, but less risk, <laughs> we'll say. They're going into battle with swords and armor and horses at the and rear. And a personal guard. Yeah, like just surrounded right. by <laughs> <laughs> the random farmers of their land are being sent to the front lines with maybe a spear. Yeah, you know? yeah. No armor. Like, yeah, hardly anything. So it's a much different game and it's a much tougher decision. But some of these lords would be thinking about that. A lot of them would be callous and like, nope, these peasants are my property. They do what I say. But some of them would be like, no, I'm not going to put these people at risk just because these two lords are arguing about which gods are real and when I'm fine to worship them both, you know? So there'd be a lot of different opinions here and a lot of just people being pulled in a direction they don't necessarily want to be pulled in because of greater risk if they don't act. There's a little bit of shades of A Dance with Dragons here where Raven Tree Hall's under siege and then Jamie comes and, uh, you know, fixes that, quote-unquote fixes it. Whereas here, it wasn't resolved so easily that it took more war to, to solve it. So... I'm going to guess, like what you said, Sean, the Storm King had some conditions. He's like, I'm not just going to come over here and help my f- father-in-law because, you know, I'm getting something out of this. And that said, it doesn't seem that his initial plan was, watch this, y'all. I'm going to go in, be the hero, and then I'm going to take it all for myself. That is what happened, but I don't think that's how he how he planned on it. For one thing... Anyone, not just a river lord, knows what a chaotic mess the Riverlands is. Like, do you really want to rule that? Well, maybe you want to, but can you? (laughs) 
I don't know. It's pretty hard. Look at how hard the internal, the Riverlands born kings have had holding it all together. What makes me think a Storm King who lives all the way over here, what makes me think I can keep it all together? Maybe pride, maybe arrogance. Sure, there's re- there are reasons, but you can also see why I wouldn't just be like, yeah, I'm going to take all that for myself. There's reasons no one else had done that before. <laughs> there's reasons it hadn't been held. Yeah, it's hard. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It might uh, backfire horribly. So we're going to guess that he asked for some things. Maybe Maybe that second marriage was part of it. Maybe it hadn't happened yet. Maybe he expected money or other political favors. We're not sure, but whatever it was, it changed because it whatever he asked for, he got more. And by the end, because he didn't initially ask for the, the Riverlands, we know they would they definitely would have told him no if he had asked for that originally. And and to be clear, we'll go into it, but he didn't leap right to that either. Right. He went through several different sort of like options, if you exactly. will. Exactly. His last resort was fine. I'll just do it myself. Yeah. And, and like same thing with Robert and Ned and John Aaron. They res- they rose up against the tyranny of Ares. They didn't rise up to make Robert king. That wasn't the initial play. That came later. They were like, well, we're this is not quickly resolved. We're This is going on too far. Now it's... A, Several battles have been fought. Now it's a full-blown rebellion. At first, it, it didn't start that way. So that's what we're saying. Like, things can... When you start wars, they can go in directions that you had no idea. You know, Storm King starting a war with the Riverlands could end up in him losing his own life. And he's trying to double the size of his kingdom. He may end up ending his life instead or, or screwing up his own dynasty. So it's a very tough decision. It's not something you do lightly. And... So whether we've sussed out his motivations properly or framed it properly, the Storm King called his banners, marched into the Riverlands with a very large army. First, he won several battles before getting to Raventree. So there were other there were, armies met him along the way, or perhaps he freed other castles, like maybe the Vances of Atranta had lost their seat during the war and he restored it to them. Or maybe they were also under siege, something like that. Maybe the Tullys were also under siege, although he, he wouldn't have gone to Riverrun before... Raventree Hall, because that would have—it's <laughs> it's farther west. That would be really weird. But in, either way, there were battles before he got to Raventree, which implies that there was still stuff happening elsewhere. The war was raging in other places. Maybe see if I'm Roderick, I send I I send my Faith Militant army against the Storm King first, because maybe he doesn't want to fight them. Maybe the Stormlanders aren't excited about fighting against the the warriors of God, you know, for lack of a. That's probably not what they called them, but it's that same idea of like, do we, do we seven worshipers want to fight against these guys who have devoted themselves to the seven? That might not, that might not sit well with them. That might make them uneasy. Maybe not though. Uh, But I like the idea. It it could be a strategy, even if it wasn't used here. (laughs) So where it all culminated, there's a, we don't know a whole lot about those early skirmishes or battles, whatever they were. We do know where it all came together. King Humphrey had to be aware of the Storm King's approach, at least because of those other battles, if not before that. It's a rather large army, and, you know, it's hard to keep that a secret. The final battle was fought near Raventree Hall, not at it, so maybe the siege had been broken, or really what I I figure what happens was the Stormlands army approaches, the the Riverlanders under the under the Teagues hear about this or see, or see it, they form up to face them, and the Blackwoods emerge from Raventree Hall to try to catch them in between. Now, the battle actually took place at the Teats, 
Barbus Teats or the Mother's Teats. It's had a lot of different names. The same one that have been owned by the, both the Brackens and Mrs. the Blackwoods. Missy's Teats. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <laughs> Missy's Teats. Barbus Teats. Missy's Teats. Barbus Teats. Anyway, the battle wasn't on the Teats. It was in between them. So the cleavage. Oh. The battle was fought in the oh, cleavage. Oh, would that that were me. <laughs> so it's fought with a lot of axes a lot of axes yes there was cleaving all over the place and rather than describe the battle let's hear the account from the quote king humphrey was the first to die that day it is written his heir prince humphrey took up his crown and sword but died a short time later whereupon the second son hollis did the same only to be killed in turn. And so it went, the bloody crown of the last river king, passing from son to son, and finally to King Humphrey's brother, all within the space of a single afternoon. By the time the sun went down, House Teague had been entirely extinguished, along with the kingdom of rivers and hills. The fight in which they died has hereafter been known as the Battle of Six Kings, in honor of Arlen III, the Storm King, and the five river kings his Stormlanders slew, some of whom reigned for minutes, not even hours. A little bit of uh, Damon Blackfire and his sons in this uh, moment here, a little bit of the War of Five Kings, given it's the Battle of Six Kings. And yeah, it sounds like quite a battle, incredibly bloody and stubborn. The Teagues knew their place at the top was at stake. The Faith fought for their beliefs, and the Blackwoods fought for theirs, or at least many would have. Others fought for power. The Stormlanders fought for their king. Um, it's because of so many people died. It's one of these things that you don't normally see. Normally, like one side gives up and saves their lives, but this was just unbelievably bloody. So many people dying. Lord Blackwood was killed, too. We're not sure when, as compared to these Teagues, like maybe it was before, during, after, we're not really sure. All told, apart from the complete end of the Royal Teagues, both Lords Vance as well were killed. So Lord uh, Vance of Atranta and Lord Vance of Wayfarer's Rest, and Lord Bracken, not to mention Lord Blackwood, and Lord Smallwood, and Lord Tully. Like, wow, <laughs> that's great. That's another reason it reminds me of, of the War of Five Kings, because this is a lot of kings to die in one battle, let alone one full campaign. So... Because it was so bloody, the, that's the, the good side to it being so bloody, was that ended the fighting. That was it. Like, there was no no more will to fight after that. No army uh, of, of Teagues. All the Teagues were dead. So I guess that's the positive. But the death of Lord Roderick really threw a monkey wrench into everything. The, the Storm King was like, okay, we don't know what other favors he demanded. But it's at this time when he entered the war that the talk of making Lord Blackwood King began. Because, of course, it hadn't begun when he was, oh, I'm a persecuted guy. That's, you know, fight with me, the persecuted man, not fight to make me king. Like, they wouldn't care about that as much. That's not what they rose for. So it pivoted to that, and it may be because of the Storm King's pushing, because he wanted to be married to a king rather than a lord, and he wanted his son married to the son of a king and all that stuff. It's a great way to raise his own prestige. And he may have had these designs on his descendants, forming some new kingdom or something like that. But of course he had to pivot when Lord Roderick was killed. Now you might say, well, why didn't he just, why not just make Lord Blackwood's son the king or something like that? Why not make him a puppet ruler? Well, let's talk about why. Earlier we mentioned the marriage of Shiera Blackwood to King Arlen's son. 
And it's possible that didn't happen until this aftermath rather than the double marriage idea we floated. Now, in other words, he could have married her to his son after father's death, like we said. Like that second marriage could have been like, okay, this is a way for me to lock down power. Roderick is dead. I'm going to marry this son to my, to make another marriage to tie myself to this family even more and have even more power over them. I, w- I want to real quick put a slightly less uh, cynical spin on sure. it. Sure. Might not have wanted more power. It might have wanted more stability. He okay. might have just been happy being a Storm King. He didn't have some long-term design to take over the Riverlands, but he just knows it's better if we have peace, getting our families tied together, work to that end. So yeah, I mean, there is... It's got to be at least a potential motivating factor. In that's this, a great right? point because they're neighbors and they trade with each other. So you would want them like, you, hey, settle your business so we can go back to me shipping you iron for your grain or whatever. You know, like my yeah. people need that food and, and we want to sell that iron for money, etc. The Stormlands is really good at, at forging weapons, you know, and you have good smiths there and they have ports and there. And, and yeah. Riverlanders are a barrier to the Iron Men. Yes. If you're warring with each other, you're not going to stop them. You're a, a cross path to the north and the west. And like, there's all kinds of reasons for people outside the Riverlands to want the Riverlands to be stable and at peace and secure. So. Yeah. And one thing we'll see as well is when much later, if we jump back to Aegon's Conquest for just a minute, when Argilac summons his forces to face Oris and Rhaenys in battle within the Stormlands, pirates and Dornish raiders take advantage of the fact that the Stormlanders have concentrated their armies up in another area within the realm. So they, they start picking off at the borders and, and attacking the the um, the areas that are un- become unprotected. So mm-hmm. so that's a risk. So that's something else. A Storm King would be like, well, hey, I'm taking a risk coming here. I expect to benefit from all this. So Shiera was floated. The idea was presented to the Riverlords as queen of the Riverlands. And King Arlen supported the idea because his son was her husband. That would be great for him. And so he, his son would be king consort. And then eventually his son might would be king of the Riverlands or king of the Stormlands. So he would be king consort of the Riverlands and king of the Stormlands without any more fighting having to occur. Right. They would just boom. It's done. But the Riverlords were like, nah, we don't want to we don't want a queen. This was very stupid on their part because they didn't consider by pushing away these viable options what they'd end up getting. <laughs> what they probably it was stupid for other reasons. To be it was clear. also yes, it was stupid <laughs> for other reasons. But the the, the sexism here is really going to bite them in the butt uh, because it's a, it's another case of rejecting a woman for a worse alternative that they should have seen coming. <laughs> now it's not just that. It's not just sexism. It's not the only thing. Even Nina points that out. It's not. She calls it a simple Westerosi aristocratic. Misogyny certainly played a major part here. It's not the only thing because you're not only handing a crown to a woman, you're handing a crown to a woman who's married to the Storm King or the future Storm King. That's the political instability or political uh, reality they may not want to see come to fo- to the fore. They may not want that connection. They may not want the, uh, they maybe it may have been okay with a queen, but not a queen who's got such ties to the Stormlands. But they may not have wanted a queen who's like a worshiper of the old gods either. A, a that's probably not it, because they seem to be okay with the idea of Roderick, and he was a man worshipping the old gods. It probably wasn't that, but still. Uh, Rob didn't want to leave his throne to Sansa, not because she's a girl, but because she was married to Tyrion. Right? He's like, well, we're just handing it over to the Lannisters. So, mm, now, Sansa was fully in the clutches of the Lannisters at this point, whereas Shiera is not, but they could be worried about that, like, the Storm King takes her back to the Stormlands and keeps her there, you know? What are we going to do about that? So th- th- it still could happen, even though it wasn't happening at the at that point. Um, so 
and if you think about continuing on the line of Winterfell, like there's still going to be factionalism here. Like who's going to end up with Winterfell? Is it going to be Rickon, Bran, Sansa? Even Arya has a claim, sort of, right? So there's like, and if the different factions get behind them, it becomes almost as much about what those factions want than about what those individuals sort of ostensibly leading those factions, what they want. So the reason they rejected Lord Blackwood's son over Shiera is because he was only eight. Too young to be a king, certainly. Now, that, that makes a lot of ageism. sense. Yeah, ageism. <laughs> ageism is better than sexism. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh, so what I think the River Lords were angling for was one of Lord Blackwood's brothers. Or maybe they just couldn't see that far ahead and they were just were saying no to things they didn't like without thinking of what that would leave them with. Because with all these options being taken off the board, okay, no, we don't want, we can't have an eight-year-old. We don't want a woman, and especially not one married to the Storm King. If that was their reason, it would really backfired. if it's the connection to the Storm King. Uh, so, but the Storm King's like, no, I don't trust Lord Blackwood's brothers. This may be where the politics gets. He may have, that may have been an excuse. We don't know if Lord Blackwood's brothers are trustworthy or not. We have no idea who these guys are. This is the first mention of them. We didn't know he had brothers until <laughs> this, this comes up. They weren't described in the war at all. So we have no basis to determining whether or not this was like a, he saw, okay, almost everyone's been cast aside as an option. There's only like these brothers between me and claiming it for myself. That's the only thing in my way now. All these things have been cleared out. And he realized the position he's in where I can just take this all for myself. Well, only Lord Blackwood's brothers are in my way. He just has to say he doesn't trust them or something like that. Now, if they were really, really honorable guys, that might not have worked. So they probably weren't like super upstanding guys. But maybe it was just a big power play and he was able to control the narrative. I don't know. So I, I still lean on him not being so, I don't know what word to use, manipulative or, or ambitious. Because like you said, I think if they were, like he didn't, he didn't have him killed yeah. after the fact, yeah. right? So it, it doesn't seem like he's just this evil, warmongering, power hungry lord. He, he didn't have him killed. That's true. They as still far as we know, he didn't. Yeah, potential legitimate claim. But the fact that we didn't know anything about him, he might not have known much about him either. Or the one thing you might have known about him is they still had grudges against these other families, and it's just going to be a war in a few years again if I let them take over. Like I, I again, it's hard to know, but it it just it doesn't follow the pattern of someone okay. who's yeah. being ambitious to me. I, I think he legit, and and especially because he went through these levels already of trying to find someone else to be in charge. Mm. Scratching his head. I think the whole thing he's trying to do is just find stability. Okay. I can and see that. Yeah. I look, mean, I can't trust anyone else to do it. I'll just do it. To myself. be fair, that's pretty much what happened in Robert's Rebellion. Once they realized that, like, there's no Ares has to die or Ares is dead, you know, that, yeah, they weren't aiming. They were, there's no ambition wasn't there at any point for, for Robert, really. I don't think. Not much anyway. Certainly not for Ned <laughs> or John Aaron, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Like John Aaron was more like, yeah, we got a John Aaron was about the stability. He's like, now we've the civil war has happened. It happened for honorable reasons, but we got to settle things or it's going to get worse. And that's going to be on us. And so, yeah, maybe I'm being a little too cynical, but it's, it's still the cynical options are on the table and you're right to float the less cynical options. They're on the table, too. Another option is very reasonably cynical, especially in this world. Yeah. <laughs> Another awkward angle to having one of Lord Blackwood's brothers as the new king was where's his seat of power? He doesn't inherit Raven Tree Hall. The, that eight year old kid does. No matter what, that's not changing. He still inherits. The eight year old boy gets Raven Tree Hall. That did, that shouldn't matter. None of this should change that. Now, maybe if one of them was going to be given, made king, they might be like, well, we're going to have to give you Raven Tree Hall too because. 
then you don't even have a castle. What's a king without a castle? So uh, it may have been part of the, the argument against one of the brothers. I'm not sure. Either way, it doesn't seem like they saw what came as coming. And maybe that's because it didn't seem like a very, maybe because it was a long shot. Maybe they, maybe I'm calling them short-sighted when really it was, at the time, it, it did seem really outlandish. Like the river, the Stormlands had never ruled the Riverlands before. It, you can see why that wouldn't have necessarily been an idea that was prominent in many people's minds. But however prominent or not prominent it was, that is what happened. He just said, you know what, y'all? This is mine now. <laughs> I'm the king of the of the Riverlands, and he didn't even go and rename himself King of Storms and Rivers or whatever. It's just the Stormlands. It's all the Stormlands. Like what? What an insult! They didn't even get to keep their name. This <laughs> <laughs> is one big kingdom now. That's another thing that makes me think a little bit like that. He wasn't really planning this. That because if he was, he might have done some of it better. Right. Yeah. Because in a way, that is a mistake he made. I want to say that even if he had good intentions, he did sort of rob them of their identity. Yes. Yes. By doing that. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that was his goal. I think it was an error. Right. Because right. like, yeah, like before Roderick Blackwood died and, and there's no reason to think he murdered him. He died in battle and it's pretty hard to murder a lord in battle when he's surrounded by his own guards like your armies like your army's over here his is over here like you're not even next to each other you're fighting this the same battle but you're you're not even like near each other you know in terms of proximity direct proximity so as nina as nina phrases it roderick blackwood is the ideological and leader of the rebellion and the leader with the most royal credentials and blackwoods had been kings before so they had that going for them so it wasn't like raising someone up who would never had the royal title before and they may have been kings in the north as well, so they may have had double kingships. But regardless, they were worthy in the eyes of the river lords, at least enough of them. But uh, not only does he die, but then the other Teagues die. I didn't even mention, you know, we, we mentioned uh, Damon uh, Humphrey, Lord or King Humphrey's champion, was his brother. That guy was a, a great fighter, so, you know, he could have, if he had survived, it would have been a real big deal the war could have continued for a long time like how would and if they had fought themselves rather than storm king just saying okay it's mine the riverlands could have just shredded itself even more and, and that's part might have been part of the reason he's like i can't leave them to choose either they just they won't they'll fight each other they'll just go back to war like it's might seem a little like who get what gives you the right to to tell these people what to do but come on like they're going to kill each other. Like he, <laughs> what, yeah, what gives them the right to tell each other what to do? <laughs> yeah, it's like no one's right here. So it's just the least bad option. It's it's like, yeah, that's that's what war brings you to a series of least bad options. It's never you don't often don't have good choices. So anyway, yeah, Nina agrees that with you for the most part that Arlen the third was probably being sincere when he envisioned setting up Roderick Blackwood as king and then had to pivot. Because, yeah, he was really closely tied to Roderick. He had two marriages, and that would be enough to get influence and concessions and, you know, good deals between the two of them. And and not likely have things come to war. Have a border they could trust because you have two kings that are married. And, and that's the core of a lot of royal and, and noble marriages, is to force each other to get along. You're not going to fight your family, are you? Well, you might. But hopefully, <laughs> it, it puts a big barrier between that and the worst possible outcomes which is yeah a couple of the things i can imagine in the scenario like i constantly imagine if they made a show out of this if martin did write 
a fully expanded three series books covering all the details. Arlen might have considered some of these worst case scenarios like, well, if they do, if all the errors die, well, then I'll make this girl in charge. Oh, with that, I guess in a worst case scenario, I'll just take over. He might have had this back of the mind plan B, plan C kind of stuff, but didn't expect it to come to that. Also, he might have had those ideas because someone was playing. There might have been some little finger in his court. There might have been some other advisors, oh, yeah. some other people who had something at stake, or even if, again, not to be too sinister, other people who were just trying to think about what would be the, he might have had a meeting with his counsel and they all had their different thoughts, how it might go, what we can do to make the best of it, how important stability is. They might have pitched these ideas to him and things he might not even thought of, of claiming it for himself might have been suggested to him, you know? Mm, yeah. Good said. Uh, here's a little piece from Nina. It can't be overstated what overstated what Arlen III decided to do with the Riverlands because his decision directly contributed both to ongoing rebellions against Durandan rule as well as the eventual willingness to support the horror invasion on the part of some Riverlords. Like, that's what's going to happen is they're going to be so eager to get rid of the Storm Kings. They actually support the Ironborn invasion, which is like, what planet is this happening on? Like, this is Bizarro <laughs> World. They're supporting the Ironborn? Like, woo. Yeah, that's Bizarro Toast. Yeah, Bizarro, Bizarro Toast. Uh. <laughs> Bizarro Toast. <laughs> Planet Zaros. <laughs> and partly, and, and and though it might seem small, partly this is this eliminating them as a region, like not even naming them as a thing anymore. They're just part of the Stormlands now. Like that, that was probably adding insult to injury, uh, and may have contributed in some small measure to the the longstanding grievances that would eventually come to a head, but not for quite a while. Were, the Storm Kings would endure a rebellion from the Riverlands almost once a generation. Again, this is why you don't rule this place lightly. It's a hard place to rule. They will not be ruled lightly. They will try to throw you off. They will try to throw each other off. They will fight. That basically that they are a war. It's a warlike region. Arlen and his advis- and his advisors surely saw that coming. Which again is why they didn't do this lightly. Uh, so much defending they have to send their army out all this time and their army is all the way down in storm's end like it's a hassle <laughs> so yeah the bigger the durandan empire got the more some of the other houses would see them as a threat would look at them as the big dog that need to be toppled down a peg or two the more likely people would be to gang up on them so yeah again just like it like any we've talked about this in terms of war board gaming before right sean you have like Five or six people were all playing and no one wants to stick their neck out and be the one to 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 attack someone else because then you put a target on yourself. And that's that's the same kind of thinking that the Stormlands would have been engaged in here. Like, well, if we take the whole Riverlands, we're taking the center of Westeros, the part that everyone's already always fighting over. And people won't want us to have that. And they don't want us to have everything. Yeah, just a lot of a lot of target painting on self. It's another dynamic we talked about a little bit with Aegon, too. Uh, and, you know, I don't know. This can apply in a lot of different ways. If you're the big dog, you don't want to barely be the big dog. Yes. Because then people think they might be able to take you, especially if they team up. But Aegon is like, I'm the clear dominant big dog. Any two or three of you couldn't even come close to taking me out. And that that's better for stability. It is, yeah. It's more dangerous for tyranny, but it's better for stability when you have a clear dominant big dog. Aegon is the personification of walk softly and carry a big stick. That's big stick is... Valerian, obviously. <laughs> and he has Blackfire. Well, how? He's got two big sticks. Uh, one's a lot bigger than the other, however. All right, so we're working our way. We're almost to the midpoint here. Uh, we're ending our jump back through time. But here we'll leave it with a quote about the Stormlands doubling in size and what preceded the next few centuries. 
And so they would remain more than three centuries, though the river lords rose against Storm's End at least once each generation. A dozen pretenders from as many houses would adopt the style of River King or King of the Trident and vow to throw off the yoke of the Stormlanders. Some even succeeded. For a fortnight, a moon's turn, even a year, but their thrones were built on mud and sand, and in the end, a fresh host would march from Storm's End to topple them and hang the men who'd presumed to sit upon them. This, by the way, explains a part of why Heron was like, trying to do the big dog thing that we just described. Like, well, if I have a giant castle that's unassailable, then maybe for once someone can actually lock this region down and, and get these lords to, to fall in line. Of course, it took someone with a big dragon, not a big castle, but he, he did have the right idea, I think, at least in theory. Not like it wasn't ethical necessarily, but maybe it was. I don't know. Not the way he built the castle, that's for sure. But anyway, this, this point about... It, but the thrones were built on mud and sand. Now, that's metaphorical. But literally, the Riverlands is not a, a place that has a lot of really powerful castles. River, like, Riverrun is very defensible, but it's not like a place to mass a ton of troops. It's not a, a powerhouse in terms of an aggressive option. You think about the big, strong castles in the Riverlands, you're like, well, who who would that be? Yeah, like, it, it doesn't really compare to the other regions. Like, the other regions have... Probably partly because they're less war-torn, you know? <laughs> They've had more time to... More of their money can go into making their castle strong rather than paying their troops and, and losing money to battles and And there's like been more stability around their land, so they've had more consistent crops and larger populations and on and on. Yeah. That's another thing, too. Like I would say a difference between Heron was trying to be big enough a dog so that no one challenged him. Aegon was trying to be big enough a dog so that there was stability in the land. Yes. Right. And you see, this is why part of the reason, I mean, this was just a fun story, but part of the reason I really wanted to bring this all up at this time was to show what a big deal it is that Aegon actually settled them. They actually did stay loyal to him. Like the Tullys led the rebellion against the or helped were the first to join Roderick Blackwood against the uh, the the Teagues. They were the first to join Aegon against Heron. <laughs> Heron. So they're ready to go all these times. They're like, yeah, we're ready to join this rebellion. Let's go. But when it comes to the Targaryens, they're staunch Targaryen loyalists until Ares. <laughs> like that's what broke it was right like that and some things that happened right before that. So that's a long time of staying loyal after rebelling every generation, right? Like that, <laughs> that's a lot. And then you get to Targaryen rule, and it's like, no, this is locked down better than it's ever been locked down before. We got peace here for the... And you see, as, <laughs> and as soon as the War of Five Kings starts, it's like it goes back to those old days of the Riverlands becoming this hellscape of war, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's them or their enemies coming there to make it a battleground, whether they started it or not. Arya's wandering through the Riverlands are horrible, right? Like, the, 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 what she sees there this would have been happening in this time maybe not a gregor clegane not the specific personalities there wouldn't have been bloody mummers but there would have been awful people doing awful things to regular folk who did nothing but exist and this is the kind of stability when you're like well what is what right does someone like Aegon have to attack all these lords and as well he's the lords are the ones suffering but in the long term the peasants benefit greatly 
from this kind of stability. Maybe the lords don't like it that much, but let's not. But there's a lot more peasants than there are lords. A lot more lives are being kept peaceful because someone was strong enough to stop the violence with violence. <laughs> but that's the way of the world. The Stormlands held the Riverlands for about as long as the Targaryens will end up holding it. About 300 years. That's about how long uh, before the War of Five Kings starts. And uh, things are still happening now in the books. We don't know. We don't really, we're not at a point where we can say how it's going to be. And the entire Seven Kingdoms went to a descendant of Ireland III. Right? In uh, uh, Robert Baratheon. So it also kind of came back around that way. Because Robert is a descendant of this Storm King. Very distant relative, but definitely a relative. So that's pretty neat. Let's go ahead and take our uh, mid-roll break here. Uh, I want to remind you all that every Friday I'm playing Crusader Kings 3 uh, uh, for A Song of Ice and Fire. It's a really, really awesome mod developed for that game, and the graphics are fantastic. There's a group of us that hang out every Friday at 6, and while I'm making decisions for whatever house I'm playing, right now I'm Oberyn Dane. Or no, I'm sorry. Oberyn Dane was killed in a tourney accident, which was very fitting because he was a, he was a good at tourneys, but he was also a cheater. He che- he was a, a good fighter who cheated a lot, so we made him a good tourney knight. He was like the snail from from uh, the uh, the mystery knight. He was a good jouster, but also cheated and <laughs> knew what to do. Like a good at both of those things. This this guy was that. So our thinking is maybe someone had him killed and made it look like an accident. We were a victim of our own um, lifestyle. But we're we're working on uh, our our new son is a guy named Gaines Dane and he's a he's he's huge like the size of Gregor but we're teaching him to be a good kid and hopefully he'll wield Dawn one day so that's the kind of fun stuff we're doing it's a really great game dynasties politics intrigue random events tournaments weddings it's it's a lot of fun role playing but with the with a computer handling so many things at once math and like the the money and the taxes and it's it's really overwhelming and awesome. It's comparable to civilization, right? Is that fair? It's it's more drilled down. You are playing individuals, but you have this large time scale. Uh, it's not quite the grand scale of, of Civ. Like you play years in a session rather than maybe hundreds of years in a session. But you but when you finish a long campaign, you may have ended up playing hundreds of years. Civ, you end up playing thousands of years usually. But yeah, yeah, there's some similar. Like you're not like you're not doing like founding a lot of cities and advancing technology a whole lot. But you are making small advances in technology, like better windmills but you're not like inventing electricity Mm. (laughs) you know you're not going from from stone tools to nuclear power (laughs) throughout the game technology stays about the same also want to let people know that if you listen to the patreon uh listen to our episodes on patreon spotify and patreon have created a a bit of a merger they you can now listen to the patreon only feed on spotify which is better because Spotify has a better player than Patreon does, which makes sense. They're in the business of playing audio things. They're music and audio. That's their central business, obviously, whereas Patreon's main business is facilitating payments to creators from supporters. So it's a lot easier to look through and scroll through and all that. So if you want to get, if you're already on Patreon and want to be scrolling and getting the episodes off of Spotify, let us know and we'll show you how to do that. WesterosHistory at gmail.com for any questions related to that or just anything else you want to hit us up for. Question from Dornish Dame. If the Teagues were establishing a bunch of septries at this time, could the Quiet Isle date back to this period? Oh, nice 
call. Yeah, I, I would have to look deeper to see if the Quiet Isle, if there's any clues in those chapters that indicate how long the Quiet Isle has been there. I do recall it was founded by a quiet guy, like a particular man started that way, and then it continued that way, if I remember correctly. So yeah, it could be, because the if you all remember the where the trident empties out into the bay there, that's where the Quiet Isle is. It's like right there offshore where the river empties out into the sea. So it is it's kind of isolated, but but also not. <laughs> so yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I like that idea quite a bit. Fits very well. All right. Now let's get back to our history jump. Now we're 300 years ahead. We're at the end of the reign of the Storm Kings as we transition to the Horror Dynasty, which will then... <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's just always weird saying that. The whore dynasty. Which will then get and lead us back into current times. Meaning, Aegon's Conquest current times. It seems likely that the Blackwoods continued to benefit from their relationship to the Storm Kings. After all, they had that double marriage. So even though they didn't become kings, they were married to the kings. Because when the Riverlands changed hands 300 years later, the Blackwoods were in the center of it yet again. But not in a good way. It started with Heron the Black's grandfather. Quote, when Storm's End's grasp upon the Riverlands was finally broken, it was no river lord who broke it, but a rival conqueror from beyond the lands of the Trident, Harwin Hoare, called the Hard Hand, king of the Iron Islands. Crossing Ironman's Bay with a hundred longships, Harwin's force landed forty leagues south of Seaguard and marched inland to the Blue Fork, carrying their ships with them on their shoulders in a feat the singers of the Isles still celebrate. Boy, it's hard to say Storm's End's grasp. <laughs> yes, a couple of tongue twisters in that passage. Yeah. <laughs> Almost made it. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a thing that's happened in real life. There are some real life Viking stories about that. There was an example of that portrayed on the show, Vikings of carrying ships over land. And that was based on some real incidents that have happened long ships are light enough for that and that's part of why they're light enough for that is well you get to do tricky things like carrying them overland and then drop them in the river and sail down the river so like it would be a hundred years later the river lords were not eager to stand for their their current foreign ruler the storm king at this point since it's 300 years later it's no longer arlen it's Arik. though he wasn't even aware of the invasion at this point like Harwin Hardhand snuck in with these hundred longships. Not only did they sneak by Seaguard, apparently, they started wreaking havoc and taking castles before Arik even heard about it. The Tullys actually abandoned River Run, which is kind of wild considering how defensible it is. Maybe it's less defensible against dudes with portable longships. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe the river having the water around it isn't as quite as useful. I still think that would be pretty effective because they have like catapults and stuff. Like, but I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, they marched to Raven Tree Hall, where apparently a lot of the Riverlands lords were gathering. That again, the Blackwoods were prominent enough to be the spot where everyone was gathering, or at least a substantial number of them were gathering, because it wasn't all of them. For example. The Braggans didn't gather. <laughs> they didn't come hang out with the Blackwoods to, to fight back against the River Lords. And who did they... Who was ruling Blackwood Hall at this time? A certain Lady Agnes. Oh, so they wouldn't make a woman queen, but they were totally willing to follow her in war. <laughs> I see. I mean, this is 300 years later, but still it's like, okay, guys. <laughs> but again, as we said, it wasn't just about her being a woman. There was the political situation to consider. Still, it's a little ironic. I can't help but notice that. 
So the Blackwoods were the leaders of those willing to fight the Ironborn. That's another thing of like, hey, we're the good guys. We're leading us in a good way. Like, we're leading against the foreign invader. However, the Harwin attacked them, and maybe this had been planned. Maybe the Brackens just took the initiative, but they attacked the Riverlords from behind and helped Harwin. Like, how... Does this help you engender loyalty amongst your fellow Riverlords when you side with the Ironborn? And it was effective, though. It did win the battle easily. And again, the Riverlands didn't fully unite against an invasion because of their past. Of not, not In this case, it was not wanting to defend their Storm King and not wanting to work with certain other allies that were rising against Hardhand here. But you really got to have your head up your butt to think the Ironborn are preferable. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Harwin Hardhand was an unknown quantity at this point, too. He had a reputation by then. Either way, Lothar, this Lothar Bracken guy, he was Lord of the Brackens that, that, that made this decision to attack his fellow Riverlords from behind. And they may have thought that this was just a raider. Maybe that was it. They didn't think this guy was coming to stay because the Ironborn never come to stay. They never had really before. It had been a long time since they had. So another fatal error, another fatal calculation because uh, he, he did stay, you know, and um, maybe the Brackens thought that they could leverage the Ironborn to become kings. Like, hey, I helped you in this battle. Surely you aren't going to be king of the Riverlands. Make me king of the Riverlands. I'll be a good ally to you. We can be pals. And Harwin's like, sure, bro. That's what we'll do. It's a bad plan, right? Bad plan on whoever supported the neighbors, too. But as you point out, Sean, there's other examples of people making hella bad decisions <laughs> in war, both within this story and just in the real world. Yeah, Nina points out it seems like a bad plan, but hey, you know, Rob misjudged the Ironborn also, right? Exactly. Yeah. He would get their support. But my counter to that as well, Rob had his head up his butt too. Yeah, so he so. did have his, yeah. So it, it's exactly right, my point. <laughs> you have to have your head up your butt to trust the Ironborn. And they both trusted the Ironborn, and the result was fairly predictable. Um, like Rob shouldn't have even trusted himself, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Rob, obviously, as Nina points out, Rob was, is no dummy. He made a lot of extremely clever decisions. This was not one of them, however. Of, of, but he's also immature. Yeah. He's inexperienced. Right, he's, yeah. You know. Writing the Ironborn and saying, hey, let's, let's team up against the West was not... In theory, it's a good idea. But in reality, he's, he, the, the naive part was the personality fail on Greyjoy and who he has grudges against and, and the, how stubborn he is. I'm talking more about the idea that he didn't live up to his obligation to this marriage. Oh, that right? too. That's, sure. You know, I mean, everything, but, but like, if you're like, like, I don't know, the, those the were his, his father tried to teach yeah. him, you know, he, he maybe did or didn't get a lot of lessons on, you know, diplomacy and military strategy. It seemed like he either had some innate ability or, or, you know, Ned did teach him well or something. Yeah. But Ned also would have told him to stick to his word, that his honor is important yes. and all these other things. Like, yeah, I'm a teenager in love. Who cares about all that? And, and so, Ned did warn him about the Ironborn. Ned warned Catelyn about the Ironborn and about Rob. He's like, keep Theon close, you know? <laughs> and then he's like, whoops, send him back to the yeah. Iron Islands. Whoops, that was, that's not keeping him close. But he didn't tell Rob to do that. He also never didn't foresee Rob becoming a king or taking over any of that stuff. He's like, Rob's 14. What are you talking about? So, or Rob not living up to his marriage obligations. Right. So yeah, Rob, which is yeah. integral to the war plan, and that's like, the same with <laughs> Danny and John. They make a lot of 
Bran, Arya. They make a lot of really smart decisions, but they also do some like really naive things that probably only a young person would do. Like that kind of. They're almost like real people. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? So this was uh, yeah. So maybe the horror seemed like the lesser of two evils because the Durandans had been held for three hundred years. They had tried to overthrow the Durandans so many times, as it says, a, a rebellion roughly once per generation, all failure. So maybe that's three hundred years of desperately trying to finally get rid of the storm kings led them to think that this was finally the answer and of course it was way worse because the ironborn rulers were way worse and here's how it went after the battle was over and lady agnes was captured and the the blackwoods and their allies were defeated she was brought before king harwin lady agnes herself and two of her sons were captured and delivered to king harwin who forced the mother to watch as he strangled her boys with his bare hands. Yet Lady Agnes did not weep, if the tales are true. I have other sons, she told the King of the Iron Isles. Raventree shall endure long after you and yours are cast down and destroyed. Your line shall end in blood and fire. When we first read The World of Advice and Fire, that line was pretty easy to overlook. Yeah, even the, even, the sort, even the book itself suggests that that was probably a later invention, like added on for just to make the history book seem cooler, which is a fun thing for the author to include in the book that he's writing. <laughs> he's like, I only added this for it to seem cooler. But on retrospect, in retrospect, now that we know that Aegon's dream was a real thing that George stands by, it at least becomes feasible. It's still kind of weird. Like, well, when did she, did she have this dream? Like, is that why she stood up to Heron in the first place? Because she, like, got a vision from the Weirwood, or she just is a dreamer? I mean, she's a worshiper of the old gods. It's certainly possible. She has green dreams or something like that. Yeah, it, it, you can't throw it out now. Uh, it, it's a- absolutely possible. The sources would just discard it no matter what, even if it was real, because they wouldn't be able to verify that. It would sound like nonsense. But now we have corrob- potential corroboration, so we definitely can't throw it out. We obviously can't corroborate it ourselves either, but yeah. You can imagine her being about right about a bunch of other things too, which might be why so many people were willing to follow her. Ooh, very good call. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. If she had predicted some other things or had some accurate dreams, they would be willing to follow her. Yeah, and maybe she just didn't have a dream about the Brackens. That's more of a, you should have seen that one coming. The Brackens are being the Brackens, y'all. <laughs> and... uh George has talked about borrowing this story, the Agnes Blackwood line, from a popular and probably apocryphal anecdote told about William Marshall, Catherine Svorza, and as George cheerfully put it, six different men and at least two women. The fact that George talks about it being a story that was probably made up but so entertaining nevertheless makes me think he was probably doing the same here. Not really trying to make a supernatural prophetic point, just embellishing the historical chronicle with added flair for one of his favorite houses nina says the black are clearly one of his favorite houses yeah it's hard to disagree with that <laughs> it does seem like one of his favorite houses but still i like the idea that maybe it's not entirely made up it probably is but we have to consider the possibility that people were having these dreams i mean the idea of dreaming about the eventual others is really old it's certainly not the timeline like it being this long ago certainly that doesn't throw us off that's not an argument against it because this is something that's like the prince that was promised or Azor Ahai. It's a super, super ancient thing. It, way, it predates, it might predate the Seven Kingdoms. I mean, it might predate like the first men in Westeros. It certainly predates the Andals in Westeros, I would think. So there's a lot of p- potentials. If you can see the future in dreams, then why not this one? Yeah. And well, 
Hmm. Yeah, could be, could be. Let us know what you think about the Agnes Black Agnes uh, Blackwoods. I almost called her Agnes Blackfire. Agnes Blackwoods uh, words here. Whether you think there's a chance that this was a real dream, or if any other details you might want to add to the mix, maybe we'll bring them up in a future episode. So after the defeat of the Blackwood and Tully host, Storm King Arak arrived with his host to try to defeat the Ironborn invader. And other Riverlands houses followed the Bracken's foolishness. They went so far as to side with Harwin against Arik. Now, we, we, we would have seen this coming, of course, because as we've said, they didn't see the danger in supporting Harwin. But it continued in, in, these, in ways like this. Despite having more men, King Arik's were in sorry shape by the time it came to battle because the Riverland, Riverlords did, did what Tywin did. They burned their own lands, despoiled their own wells, and denied the invading army food and fodder. Meanwhile, they were apparently happy to provide the Ironborn <laughs> with food and fodder. Ooh, this is just so, so backfire-ish. Because, but Arik didn't back down. He's like, it doesn't, I don't care that we don't have food. <laughs> Let's keep going. I'm not going to lose this land that my family has had for 300 years. <sighs> Shades of... I just go ahead. There's a fine line between backfire and blackfire. It really is. One fine little L. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> one little L. So he he should have backed down, but didn't. And when he finally came to cross swords with Harwin, he lost many men and two of his brothers, although not himself. He escaped back to the Stormlands. This is when Lord Bracken was maybe expecting to get the crown. But, of course, King Harwin kept it, and without looking for alternatives first, Harwin didn't even go through the motions of, well, who else could I put? Maybe I could put this guy in charge. No, he just straight went straight to taking it. There was no, let's see who you guys might prefer to have. Let's let's do it right. None of, this, none of the things that Arlen III did. It was just, yeah, straight from the Battle of Six Kings, a.k.a. the Battle of the Cleavage, to... Figuring things out. Here it was straight from battle to I'm king now of your of the Riverlands. The sources doubt that Bracken expected this. Which, of course, like, yeah, why would he expect that? Why would he expect an Ironborn to hand him a crown? On the other hand, what did he expect? On the other hand, we've seen lots of people make big mistakes. Lots of ruling with their heads up their butt. So maybe... This is just another case of head up butt. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, it's hard to see Lord Bracken's plan here. Like, well, did he, because it's, it's like, yeah, common sense would dictate that the Ironborn would not just hand this over. But what outcome did he expect then if he's not thinking that? It's hard to see any alternative. So I don't know. But also Nina points out that we're relying on records at Stonehenge. But as part of, <laughs> Harwin's punishment to Lord Bracken. He sacked Stonehenge, so maybe the records were lost. I mean, <laughs> I don't know that they wouldn't have taken the papers because they wouldn't have seen it as valuable, but they might have burned them. So it's a big mess. By the way, this is all happening right at the beginning of the Century of Blood. So kind of a neat thing is that the Doom had been fairly recent. So like, the whole world is in a weird state right now where the val entire Valyrian freehold is gone. So it's a time of kingdoms changing. Maybe in some ways the entire world is seeing how uh, 
things are different. Like the whole world is undergoing dramatic growing pains and changes. And uh, the most powerful empire that's ever existed is gone now. The free cities are in disarray. The Stormlands would feel a lot of that because the, the free cities would be a lot of their trading partners. They're really close, right? That's, that's pro proximity-wise, the Narrow Sea. Well, the Narrow Sea is narrow. It's not a great distance. And there's no King's Landing, of course. So, yeah, it's all very interesting to consider the global politics in this scenario, even as we're pretty contained to Westeros. Still, the... The vibe, the pe things people would be thinking about, like the attitudes of, wow, if, if the Valyrians can fall, then anyone can fall. And of course, the Targaryens would have just moved to Dragonstone. So some people in Westeros would be like, well, what are they doing? You know, what's their deal? You know, there's dragons just offshore there now. Like, what's that all about? So just things were different in Westeros. You know, I don't know if that would how much that would register for like the common folk. But for a lot of people, like, the world is changing, you know, I wonder, and I wonder if that, like, affects people's dreams, like, if magic had changed at all, like, Valyria being destroyed might affect the way the, the magic currents of the world work, which might affect the world of dreams and all that. I don't know. The American Revolution had a bit of a ripple effect, right? The sure. French Revolution came soon after, and, uh, you know, because mentalities about what and how government should work started to change, I can... I have an instinct to think, ah, people in Westeros don't even know what the heck's going on in Valeria. But but that would have been big enough of an event that it, it may have rippled through the rumor channels and mentalities of leaders and everything. Yeah. Big time, a big time of change. Not just things happening in Essos, but here in Westeros as well. So, or or maybe framing it the other way it makes more sense given where we're, our focus is. But <laughs> either way. So the Horde Dynasty established and two more attempts were made by... Arak. So Lothar Bracken tried to fight Harwin and no one supported him because he was a backstabbing jerk. And that's that's the that's what caused Stonehenge to get sacked in response. And so, yeah, Arak twi tried twice and lost both times. He didn't he didn't die either time. He managed to survive. His eldest son, Arlen V, also tried and did die in the attempt. This was probably past the time of Harwin. This was probably Halakhor. Heron the Black's father. And Arlen V is Argilac the, the Arrogant's father. Right? So, Eric, the one who lost the storm, lost the Riverlands, is the grandfather of Argilac the Arrogant. So, you can see why, part of why Argilac was like a little weird about those lands, because they had, they had been his families only a hundred years prior, maybe even a little less. So, the same lands that he tried to partly give as dowry to Aegon that he didn't have the power to give because they were Herons. There might have been a little like stubbornness. Well, yeah, but but they were ours. They should be ours. <laughs> you know, we had them recently. I still think of them as ours, you know. <laughs> and so when we get to the time of Aegon's conquest and the fact that Argilac is now on his back feet, he's healed at this point. He can't. He's the Stormlands are in no position to be invading the Riverlands at that point. They had been for quite a while, because as we saw, there had been all these attempts to retake them. But by Argilac's time, there hadn't. At least, maybe not. Maybe early in Argilac's reign, he did try that. It's possible that it's not... Because Argilac had fought a lot of battles. He was known to be a great warrior. He had very experienced in battle. Surely some of those battles were against Heron, right? Or or maybe even against Halleck, because uh, you know, maybe when... Maybe they're lives overlapped like that now maybe these weren't wars of conquest or maybe they were small wars of like border disputes like 
who controls this part of the, this land that's right on the border between the two kingdoms, that kind of thing, rather than full-blown conquest attempts of the entire thing. Anyway, that is all really good t- dots to connect to where we've been and where we're still going, because the Riverlands is still going to have its these attitudes and a lot of this history that fuels a lot of their actions later. So let's get into this last section for today, the new Riverlands. It's almost certainly the kingdom with the most houses that have ever worn a crown, right? The most number of kings. Now, maybe that's different if you go back way, way, way far to the time of a thousand kings or a hundred kingdoms or whatever. But in terms of like the last few thousand years or maybe even the last 2000, whatever, there's very few realms that can say that. If if at all, I would still bet on the Riverlands. I haven't counted because I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know if there is a count. But it's not like the Reach where just one house has just had this superior castle and bloodline for so long that allows them to just trump everyone else's claims constantly. Or the West where one house just has a superior castle, also even more superior in some ways because it's like so hard to take Castle Rock away unless you're Land the Clever. But yeah, it's only been done once. That's how hard it is to take it away. <laughs> and an unassailable supply of wealth on top of that. So like so- certain houses are just well more positioned to dominate. That's what we said. No house in the Riverlands has ever had that level of just we're so much more powerful than everybody else that everyone else is going to bend the knee to us because of that. There just has never been that sort of presence in the Riverlands. It's always been more of a rotating wheel, a spinning wheel of you know options. Heron almost accomplished it by, and Heron Hall was a way to do that. And instead of a place to unrule the unruly, though, Heron Hall became a warning: get along or else. But if you do, things will go genuinely well. <laughs> and Aegon kind of showed that Riverlands was had lots of great centuries or decades, a couple of great centuries under under the Iron Throne. So. The reason the Tully loyalty lasts so long is because it it really did happen. It really did work. There really was this stability that no one else ever finally brought them. And the grudges were out of the out of play, right? That's another huge thing. If the Blackwoods become king of the Riverlands, the Brackens are going to be mad. If the Brackens become king of the Riverlands, the Blackwoods will be mad. If the Tullys become, well, they never were kings of the Riverlands, but when they were appointed overlords, people were upset because, well, it's not them, it's... They all hate each other. So the grudge is removed from the equation with Aegon in there. They don't have a long-standing hate of the Targaryens or of the Valyrians or of Dragonstone or of the Lords of the Narrow Sea or anything really associated with them. They don't hate. They haven't had a long hatred of dragons. They do really hate the Ironborn even more than they ever have because they've been ruled by them for 100 years. And before that, they were ruled by the Storm Kings for 300 years. So finally this guy comes along and well they're they're probably a little wary like are we really going to be free under this dragon king who just destroyed this castle with his dragon is it really going to be like that or are we just going to expect are we just trading one awful king for another i suspect some of them took the measure of Aegon and were like well this is we don't know what he's all about yet we, we haven't his personality is kind of hidden but he's clearly no heron he's clearly no harwin hardhand he's clearly no argalac the arrogant so, as there was optimism amongst the common folk of the Blackwater when they cheered for Aegon's banner, which may have been, you know, embellished a little bit, but at the time we said, no, they might, but they might really, there might really be some enthusiasm, some genuine enthusiasm for someone that genuinely looks strong enough to keep the peace. 
that same attitude might be here. Like, yeah, that guy burned this castle. He beat Hair in the Black alone. One guy on one dragon. <laughs> like, this really might work, y'all. It might finally be a strong enough ruler to keep the peace. So some some folks might have really had that optimism. And that might be why the Tullys were, like, really bought in right away. Of course, partly because they were put at the top. And they wanted to keep that. But th- but it might not have been cynical. It might have been really. No, this might really work. Think, too, of people who might have still been on the fence as this is playing out. But then they see the Veil vale joins. Winterfell joins. Yeah. <laughs> Castle Rock joins. Like, all right. All right. You know, we're, we're, it's not, we're not these weird, crazy ones for going along with him. Everyone's buying into it. So. Yeah. And that's a great point to, to pull out, Sean, because you're right. Like, 20 more years go by. Not even 20. Like, two more years go by or one more year goes by once the conquest is complete. And that's a totally different picture than it is now. Cause they might be still thinking, well, he's going to go on and fight these other castles, these other Lords, other great Lords. And if you saw what he just did to Harrenhal, you might be confident, but you could still see how like, no sure thing he could get assassinated. He could just choke on a, uh, a clam the next day. Why did I pick clam out of all things? Oyster. <laughs> Stick it with seafood. Stick with mollusks here. Some mollusk could murder this king <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> and you know the way it always goes. Yeah. And again, that's the fear. Like, yes, he looks really strong and powerful, but he doesn't have any kids. So there's still the risk of it. Just yes, if you know, we we switch to him, and he dies, and he's got no heirs. And what next? Like, does it all just? go into chaos immediately after a couple of years. So there was, there, you can see there's both reasons for optimism and some real big risks. I, I still think the optimism is greater because another thing it would have been in a very short term, they legitimately could have expected. Was it, all right, he's conquered the Riverlands. We've sworn fealty to him, but he's going on to conquer these other lands. So he's probably going to take all our soldiers. He's going to take all our sons and march them off to the west, and man, they're all going to die out there. Like, no, none of them died out there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Hardly any. Well, maybe like, some, but not they many, they yeah. didn't have to sacrifice all their troops. Maybe here and there, but it wasn't like the Riverlands were ravaged for the sake of Aegon's conquest. Right. Right. That's true. They were preserved. Yeah. Right. That's true. So, that's true. You're right. That's a really good point. Like he, they would probably kind of amazed by that, kind of gobsmacked by, we just switched kings. And the only ones that died were inside that castle, you know, for the most part, besides like those two little skirmishes. But that's still like they would be able to brush that off pretty lightly, given how much death usually happens when there's a right. Think how much death there's usually been conquest within the Riverlands. He's conquesting the whole continent and there was less death way by far. Yeah. Yeah. So they've never seen it. It's a great point. They've never seen anything like this, especially the Riverlands, who are just so used to just these just brutal, bloody, muddy, just endless struggles they're like this is this is totally different we've never seen anything like this so yeah yeah i kind of see where you're coming from that there might be a lot more optimism than i might think um maybe not immediately but soon after i can imagine in the the days weeks following heron hall there's starting so might have been a lot of uneasiness and expectation for a lot more death and war to come yeah but a year later they're feeling good about things you know it's true yeah, it, it went well. I mean, yeah, like like ten years in, especially, they'd be like, yeah, this is this was a good call because Aegon's reign was going pretty smoothly. Other than what was going on in Dorne, which, you know, some Riverlanders probably went to Dorne and died there. But mostly, it was the dragons just flying around, burning castles, and not getting the submissions they wanted. And, and it was the Reach who gave up more soldiers. For you're that right. The Reach was the Riverlanders. The, too, so. You're totally right. The Reach is the the primary anti beneficiary of of sufferer mm-hmm. of those losses. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, Tully loyalty would stay, as I said, they would stay strong all the way up until the time of Hoster, and that's because of Ares's actions. But, but a little before that, there were some problems, too. It wasn't just Ares. Ares was like the last straw. They, there was almost a Tully queen. There was Celia Tully was almost queen, but some things happened, and we describe what happened in the Blackfish episode. Uh, and that is partly, and it was when those, when Hoster and, Black, uh, Hoster and Blackfish were young when this happened, so the getting denied a Tully queen may have been when, when Hoster and Blackfish were boys, may have sat wrong with them at a time when they're very impressionable, and that may have helped make the decision to turn on the Targaryens as adults a lot easier. Anyway, let's move past that. With those things in mind about the River Lords, their long history, trading one conqueror for another, let's consider the decision to name Lord Edmund Tully as Lord Paramount of the Riverlands in light of how hard it had been for the Riverlands to ever have stability. Right here, we have something new. Again, with this new world picture here, Lord Paramount, that's a new title. No one had ever been a Lord Paramount before. And it's an interesting title because Lord Paramount is seems to have mostly been granted to lords who hadn't been kings in the past. Lord Stark was not named Lord Paramount of the North. He's just Warden of the North and Lord of the North and Lord of Winterfell. But Edmund was Lord Paramount of the Trident. And Tyrell, Harlan Tyrell, was Lord Paramount of the Mander and then eventually Lord Paramount of the Reach. He, his house hadn't been kings either. Now, I guess maybe the... So it's kind of an interesting little political sub-discussion here, but it was a way to maybe give Edmund additional honor, you know, a new title that gives him some additional prestige and designating him as in charge of the Riverlands, but not king of the Riverlands. So it's another way to kind of, it's like a little softer. It's like, yeah, he's in charge of y'all. He's not your king. You don't have to kneel to him. But you do have to you know, take orders from him, especially in war, and, and he's first amongst you, that kind of thing. So it's not quite, it's not as, their pride is not quite as tested by these things. They don't have to kneel to him. That's a pretty big deal, you know. Um, it might seem kind of small in the I, scheme of things, but it's it's not. <laughs> I hadn't thought about this too much until you just started talking about it, but it's. I, I wonder if as much as anything, what might can make it an easier pill for the subjects to follow, is it, I think, it's a responsibility that he has. Yes. At least as much as a power that he has. Yeah, that's right? a great point. Especially when you make a parallel to like Warden of the North. Like, okay, you are supposed to take care of the North. That's your job as one of my lords in the Seven Kingdoms. I wonder if Paramount, there's already a Warden of the North and East and the West. And the West so what do we do about these people in the middle? Well, they're Paramounts. They're responsible for the people in their lands. Yeah. And so with that comes a certain amount of power, but it might make the people in those lands feel happier about paying homage or taxes or whatever else to them when they recognize that they have a responsibility to them. That's a great point. Like kings should have a responsibility. Queen should have a responsibility, but they definitely don't always. It's not like required of them. Whereas this, Aegon requires that he take these responsibilities. Aegon is establishing this requirement yes. of the lords. Yes. So that, that is a very good point, Sean. And, and it speaks to the way these lords think because pride is such a big deal to them. It's not just the not kneeling, but it's, yes, this guy is above us. He's in charge. But he has responsibilities. He has to work for us. It's sort of like an elected official, where it's like, yes, this guy's got power. Like the mayor, the mayor of our town has power over us, but he has to He's run the town. To use that power yeah. to help or us. Or he right? won't have that job but next time around, or she, or if they really abuse it, they may end up in jail. Which, you know. They may end up getting stabbed in the back by Jamie Lambert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
that is how the mayor of, of Roswell, Georgia was last. Yes, there was <laughs> <laughs> the mayor's guard turned on them <laughs> in front of the asphalt throne. So and of course, I wanted in terms of Aegon's decision, like what was he thinking? We talked about how, yeah, it, ma- it made sense to reward the person that first came to him. The one that first turned on Heron is the one that got the biggest reward. That's the lesson. That's the message he's sending to the other kingdoms. Turn on your current king for me. You'll get the biggest rewards. The ones who come later will also get rewarded, but it's a lesser reward. So come now, you know, save now. Be the, for the first five, get <laughs> the first five lords to join Aegon. Get this commemorative Targaryen pin. So the fir- and and it's it's true because when Edmund Tully turned on Heron. The quote even said it was like they didn't use the term domino effect, but it was the tide turn. Like then it was Blackwood, like everyone came. It was a domino effect, even though they didn't use that that term. On Aegon's side, he would love to have more domino falling events of this type, like where a couple of defections of key lords leads to far more. Because again, he wants to rule them, not kill them. So the the bloodlessly, the more bloodless, the better. And this is, again, why he went so, so big with the example of Heron to, to set this up and to, to maybe not have to do less, more killing later. Edmund Tully, as much of Heron is an example, Edmund Tully is the reverse example. This is what Heron is what happens if you stand against Aegon. Edmund is what happens when you take his side. It's like the carrot and a stick. Yes, the ultimate carrot for Edmund, the ultimate stick for Heron. <laughs> and their names rhyme. <laughs> make an exi- big example of what happens to the worst foes and a an ex- great like generous example of what happens to the best allies again if we if i again lean into magor he totally didn't get this <laughs> magor totally didn't understand this and it's it, when you lay it out like this it, it totally makes sense it's like oh yeah of course that's intuitive it makes sense but magor no he just all sticks no carrots for magor the only carrots for magor came like and very rare opportunities, like uh, when his wives were pregnant, he got really happy, and then they gave birth to monstrosities, and he wasn't. <laughs> That's what he gets for being happy. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. And Nina says it's an encouragement to everyone else in Westeros. It's still very early in the conquest. Like, this is Aegon's fir- the first domino in terms of the, the, the larger dominoes, meaning the kingdoms, rather than the smaller dominoes of the river lords within. Yeah, so no one else in Westeros would have really had this strong idea of the Targaryens. They were forming an idea of them. They would have had an idea of them living on Dragonstone and all that, like these weird former Valyrians living on their island with their dragons. Like, what are they doing there? But now, but they didn't have an idea of them as conquerors. This is this is looking at them in a whole new light. In some ways, it would be like, of course they're doing this. They're descendants of the Valyrian Freehold, which conquered, you know, half the world. So it makes sense that these... These guys would do that. But that's very specific and vague, or very unspecific and vague thing to believe about a family. Here it is actually coming. And yeah, Aegon wasn't just burning everything to the ground. He was building a new feudal structure. He was uh, creating new titles. He had already created the small council. Now he's creating Lords Paramount. Pretty soon he's going to start making wardens. Yeah. So it's... it's, Did did he build the the King's Road? No, that was Jaehaerys. Okay. Yeah, there were roads, but they were just the places people traveled and they had been, you know, they had become roads because they were traveled. They weren't paved. But he did build King's Landing. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. He, and, and I imagine here and there, at least, maybe nothing is extravagant or, or obvious, but I bet he's building infrastructure. Yeah, some ways. Yeah, certainly. Uh, more of that came later. But yes, definitely. Um, there was some. He did rule he for was, 35 years. So, or And he was preserving infrastructure. Yes. Yes, he was preserving. Yes, he was trying not to destroy too much of what was there. Absolutely. Uh, surely several river lords regretted not being the first. Like, oh, man, if we had turned first, we could be Lord Paramount. <laughs> could have been could have been me instead of Lord Edmund. And he may have been aware if Aegon was really on top of his game, which it seems like he probably was, he w- may have been aware of how much the Riverlands had been a-, a place of chaos and of constantly throwing off rulers. And he knew that going in and was like, I'm going to make sure to do this the right way in a way that will not inflame these old grievances. He might tread carefully while also projecting this extreme confidence and power. Nina flat out says calling the Tullys, uh, making the Tullys the new overlords of the Riverlands was political genius. By raising them to paramount status, Aegon demonstrated that he would not be another Arlen III or Harwin Hor, scooping up the Riverlands and stuffing the region in his own pocket. He would give the Riverlords a sense of independence, at least in the context of his own feudal realm. They would be ruled not by some foreign king at Storm's End or Orkmont, but from the heart of the Riverlands itself and from a family with ancient standing in the region, one that had handled themselves pretty well. Like they were at the forefront of a lot of these efforts to throw out unworthy kings. And they were at the front of this effort to support one that seemed worthy. So it was an incredibly powerful way to secure buy-in to the brand new regime the Targaryens were creating. Aegon was openly stating his intention to let the Riverlands govern itself, something none of their previous conquerors have been willing to do. So yeah, again, that's the whole responsibility versus rule versus this is mine versus I'm going to manage this well, you know, like a leader versus uh, a tyrant, that kind of thing. Or even rather than I'm going to manage this well, we're going to manage this well. Yes, yes. And he would probably be careful to phrase things a certain way. He would he would be diplomatic about it, knowing the, the, the powder keg that he's dealing with. And he balanced power pretty well in a way that, yeah, the Tullys had never been king, so it would be harder for them to get support to against the Targaryens. Not only are they did they get their power from the Targaryens, their power kind of depends on the Targaryens, so it's harder for them to go against them, but they don't have this long-standing uh, pride or, or uh, subservience from other houses that have followed them into battle before. Kind of like the Starks. Yes. Right? The Starks it wasn't that about. hard for the Starks to get all their bannermen to rally with them against the Targaryens because they were sort of established beyond the Targaryens. Yes. But the Tullys didn't quite have that angle. No. So they're not motivated to go against Targaryens because the Targaryens are their friends and gave them the power. And they have less ability to go against them because they can't... All these other people are begrudgingly accepting them in the first place. Yeah. You know? That's something that Aegon or any conqueror cannot replicate. You can't go in and beat the gardeners and immediately get the same level of loyalty from houses that have followed the gardeners for 8,000 years. You can prove you're stronger than them. That does not going to make them love you or be willing to go the extra mile for you. Because the gardeners, another example, they were willing to face this guy, this Aegon and his sisters, because the gardeners had been their kings for so long and that's who they followed. Uh, yeah. Aegon wants to control the people that have that control, not destroy that, because then that you get to he gets to benefit from that loyalty using the gardeners as a conduit like he may have wanted to destroy the gardeners because they were too powerful but he might have preferred to keep them in place to make ruling the reach easier on the other hand it creates the potential that they can use that support against you whereas in the case of the tullys or the tyrells no 
they don't have that 8,000 years of loyalty built up where people will be like, we want a, a native ruler that we followed before. That just doesn't exist with the Tullys. They're proud, but not that proud. And with Harrenhal's burning, a few other things there. We discussed the value of the lesson and the symbolism last time, but there's a few other intriguing decisions to be made during the aftermath. Even though Heron was gone and the castle was badly damaged, it was still quite functional. That meant possible risk. It's only two weeks' ride from King's Landing, his new capital. So, like, yeah, it's a little, might be a little bit of risk for himself or his descendants. Maybe not, maybe not so much him, but his descendants. If someone, if Heron Hall's a big, powerful seat, then it could challenge his powerful seat close by. Apparently, he judged the risk worthwhile, or else he might have declined to allow anyone to live there. Like, he could have easily made the castle indefensible with a little more work. Like, just take down part of the walls. And so there's a huge gap in the walls. It's like, make it less defensible. Like, he didn't destroy the walls. He melted the towers, but they're still standing, right? It's still a castle. It still works that way. It still does the basic things a castle can do. Keep people in and out. It has gates and doors and <laughs> things like that. Those all still work. The walls are still high. Right, he people and supplies, if you will. Yeah. it's got you know farmland surrounding it and storage rooms for grain and you know armories for soldiers and everything. So, so if he wanted to reduce its effectiveness as a fortress, it would have been pretty easy. He could have just ordered that done, and, and it would have been done. But he decided to leave it the way it was and reappoint it, uh, which uh, something we'll come to in a minute. Maybe he decided to curse it. Uh, maybe he decided to curse it. That's where the <laughs> curse came from. Aegon put it on there. No one knew about that. He sent. He sent Visenya in there with some with a spell book and was like, hey, go ahead. It took a while to curse the whole place. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of curses. One tower at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so what happened later after Robert's Rebellion was the same thing was happening. If you take enough land away from Harrenhal, if you take enough of its supporting lands away from it, it, it becomes a white elephant. It can't support itself. And then, then it's not a threat. It's like, well, they're too busy with upkeep to mount a, a rebellion. That I'd say Robert did that, but really it was probably John Aaron that did that. <laughs> it was under Robert's reign that that happened. So, it, it, if Robert did that, he did that on accident. Yeah, <laughs> he may have. Yeah, <laughs> he did it because Littlefinger convinced him or something. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's like house poor. It's the modern equivalent of being house poor. You may you force the Lord of Harrenhal to be house poor by reducing their incomes to the point where they can't afford the upkeep of the place. I mean, house poor. If you're not familiar with that term, it's it's well, you own a house that you can't really afford. <laughs> It's not uncommon. Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. If someone just gave me a $20, a $20 million mansion, like I can't afford the heating bill, the taxes, the, you know, the, I'm sure something like that comes with gardeners and all sorts of infrastructure. And same thing with Heron Hall. You'd have all sorts of, uh, you could you could have it, but you couldn't fully manage. Littlefinger right? literally says have, that you about have, the heating you bill. You have to rent it out, Sean. I think it'd be your best bet. You guys either just immediately resell it or you'd yeah. be like, Airbnb. I, I, it would be a huge hassle for yeah. you. Airbnb in, in Westeros is H-E-I-R. It's Airbnb. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, Littlefinger literally pointed out about that to Sansa. Like, the cost of heating Hall is absurd. <laughs> like, just the amount of firewood you need to heat that place. Like, the ceilings are so freaking high. Like, that's... <laughs> and, you know, I never thought of this parallel, but that's what's happening at the wall in the north. Yeah, right? yeah. There's, we're all just shut those towers down. We don't have enough people or resources to keep that going. And the, and the Erie. They shut down the Erie because it gets too cold in the winter. They just... It's like... It's a summer. It's a summer home. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> that being a summer home. That fancy, one of the fanciest places in the world. <laughs> yep. And Lord Edmund is going to prove to be pretty competent. Not only is he a good choice politically 
and to send a message to other lords about rewards and, and coming over to Aegon's side. But apparently he's just a pretty competent guy. Uh, after Lord Orys's tenure as Hand, Edmund will be the next one. So that's that's pretty interesting. So he's going to be Hand of the King. So this, this relationship is going to end up paying dividends for both of them. Although Edmund won't actually be uh, Hand of the King for a long time, but we'll get to that later when the time comes. Okay, our last small section today is the new house in Harrenhal. One thing that distinguished the Ironborn Conquerors from the Storm Kings and even the Targaryens is that they were the only ones who intended to make it their capital. Yes, the Riverlands were ruled from the Stormlands in the time of uh, Arik and Arlen and all their descendants. And Harwin didn't make the give the Riverlands, you know, much pride or, or basically made it his, but he did intend to really make it his. He intended to move his seat of power from the Iron Islands to there because it's, you know, it's hard to rule from the islands, which is Aegon would agree. Like, yes, that's why we didn't put our capital at Dragonstone. <laughs> yes, it's a similar kind of problem. So he wanted to Harwin and his father and grandfather moved their seat of power from the Iron Islands to the Riverlands. Halleck ruled from Fairmarket, which is kind of like Aegon would have been kind of like if Aegon had just continued to rule from the Aegon Fort instead of expanding it. Maybe he intended to make Harrenstown, which became Harrens, Harrington, and now uh, that Harrenstown, which is made by Harren, would have maybe he would have intended to make it a, a King's Landing-sized city. It was small. It never got going. But that may have been his intent for the long term to really localize and centralize power in the middle of the Riverlands, which makes sense. Like, Heron, that's actually smart. As awful as he was, this was a good idea. But, of course, Aegon destroyed it. Heron also intended to extend his realm beyond the Riverlands, which is why we brought up the danger of having Hall so close to King's Landing. This is would have been an enemy capital designed at, for conquest. This was a castle built to maintain future conquests that never did take place. Uh, no matter how far he expanded, Hall would have remained his capital, I would think, unless one of his descendants was like, this castle's dumb, <laughs> and said this is too expensive, and my, my great-great-great-grandfather was an idiot for making this castle. It's too expensive. Either way. Although, <laughs> I don't think that's how it would have played out for what it's Maybe not. worth. Is I think that... <laughs> That would have been justification for raiding more lands and oh, pillaging more value. Got to pay for places in order. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So just they never would have decided it's too expensive. They just would have attacked more places to get to reap their resources to point. maintain the expense. Good point. Reaching, ranging far and wide. It may have, may have, may have come to the point where he was constantly sending his ships out of of Westeros, just raiding Essos and maybe Sothorios for for supplies, because the Westerosi would be like, "Stop doing it to us." You're a big, powerful <laughs> king. Go go overseas to do that, you know? <laughs> Not that that's any better, but it's better for them. <laughs> so the longer... Notice that the, the horrors, I said they were making at their base, but they were only in the Riverlands for it's, maybe a little more than two generations, but two to three kings. At least that's how, you know, depends on exactly what their presence counts as. Certainly Heron was there for multiple generations just building Harrenhal, but still the the full transition of power wasn't complete, right? There would have been more of a, like, a partly ruling back from Orkmont, partly ruling from the Riverlands until the castle was built, and it, it's, it's not a certain thing. So another example of Aegon rewarding service came shortly after, 
He didn't give Harrenhal to a river lord, which he might have done, but he decided to give it to someone that he could maybe more directly count on, something more someone more familiar to him, who is Quentin Coheris. Now, Quentin Coheris, he did the right thing, or like the politically expedient thing. He didn't make Quentin Coheris lord of the Riverlands. If that would have just been a foreign ruler, even though he wouldn't have been king, it still would have been a person that has no idea about this place, has no back, backstory or history, no experience with the Riverlands. This wouldn't make much sense. So Quentin Coheris had to be subject to Lord Tully like the rest. Quentin Coheris was the master at arms at the Red Keep. So he may have been the guy that taught Aegon's father. Uh, we believe he was an older man because he had a grandchild at this point, and the fact that grandson's going to inherit Harrenhal. But he, so that implies a certain level of closeness to Aegon and, and Oris as well, the guy who could give them more, one of the few people that could tell them what to do growing up. Like, no, swing the sword, swing it harder. You saw how, like, Kristen Cole and, and uh, Harwin Strong it's a little different when you're training the, the princes. You can actually you have a different level of authority over them because they have to listen to you because you're teaching them how to fight and things like that. So it's one of the few people that would have told Aegon what to do growing up. And so maybe it puts him in an interesting position. I think I talked a little about this before, but I need to rehash it to show why this reward is important and why this, this transition is important. Coheris. And why it makes sense for him to have gotten this reward. Yes, yes. It's like his master at arms? Like that's, that's quite a promotion. Funny, too, that he's not the only master at arms to to get handed over Heron Hall. <laughs> One of Aegon the Unworthy is going <laughs> to have... It's part of the curse. Yeah, yeah, right? Uh, <laughs> this is just how it goes, right? So Nina made up some house words for House Coheris because they don't have any. And it's blood for blood. Good fitting for that. That's a, it's a, it's a nice phrase. And look at that sigil. Four skulls with those flames. Uh, you wonder what those four skulls indicate. If it's just four skulls because quartering shields is like a normal thing to do. but. One theory is that those represent Aegon's four, or Heron's four dead sons that maybe have burned mm. there, or two of them burned in the ships, and mm. two of them. And we don't even know that he had four. He had at least four. He may have had more than four. Uh, so this is clever as well. Let me read what Nina wrote about it. Aegon also cleverly handled the incorporation of Hall into his burgeoning kingdom by giving the castle to his longtime supporter and fellow Valyrian expatriate Quentin Coheris. Aegon both installed a loyal lieutenant in the area and removed the taint of the horrors from the geopolitical map. Hall would be neither a site of pilgrimage for discontented Ironborn, nor an albatross around the neck of any of the native Riverlord families forced to rebuild it, staff it, heat it, do all those other things. It's expensive. Two, by making the Cohoruses subject to Riverrun, Aegon removed any sense of royal dominance from Harrenhal as a castle. It's now subject to a much smaller castle, so it's no longer the seat of kings, even though Tywin will call it that later when he's upset at how it was given to... Um, Jano Slint. He's offended that Jano Slint got. He's like, that's a butcher. You can't give the seat of kings to a butcher. Tywin's like noble uh, mind was just so offended by that. His his personality mm -hmm. just couldn't handle such an up jump, such a large jumping up of status. Like it shouldn't happen. Just even he understood how crappy Janos was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the Coheris is uh, could could be trusted to ensure that this huge castle remained loyal to the crown and would quietly remind the Tullys that, you know, if there's at least one castle, a big one in the Riverlands that would definitely side with the Targaryens, that if anything went wrong, this is someone in their midst that would not be on their side, someone that would support the royal side. 
And to that end, geographically located well, right? Yes, yes. It's, it's on their end towards, so it would be much easier for them to move from King's Landing to Heron Hall, then to the rest of the Riverlands, rather than that being a barrier to the rest of the Riverlands. So the Riverlands moving to there and then launching out towards King's Landing. So that's very key geographically. Sean has a fun note here that says, what happened to the Coharises? And then a, then a second note under it says, oh, sheesh. <laughs> so yeah, we'll get to that. It happens during the reign of Anis, so the next king. But yeah, we've got a little 30 more years to get to before the end of the Coharises. But yeah, it's not a, it's not a happy tale. We also don't know what castle House Strong held at this point. It's a it's an enduring mystery. What castle did House Strong rule? Whatever it is, it might not be there anymore because, well, they're not there anymore, but they existed and were prominent prior to this. And then eventually they got Harrenhal. So we're not really sure. There's, there's something missing here in the history. Um, Nina thinks their, their, their sigil, which is the three forks of the trident, well, three colors, which are the three forks of the trident, reflects the idea that they're somewhere near the the front like where before the trident forks away something near the where the branches join together and strong could refer to the current where the current would be the strongest where it flows out into the into the bay into the ocean eh, but it's still that's that's a good guess but it is a guess this also may have been when he defined what was riverlands and what was crownlands when he drew those borders or around this time if he didn't do that that didn't do it now he did it shortly after the conquest i assume because Maidenpool, we, we pointed out that Maidenpool was claimed by Heron, well, was ruled by Heron, but it had formerly been part of the Riverlands, but it's kind of on the border, so it could have gone either way. But Maidenpool is definitely in the Riverlands, was then, is now, and yeah, it's basically the border. What would be Stormlands versus the Crownlands, because the Crownlands hadn't been defined, so not only did the Riverlands border had to be defined, but sort of the Stormlands border. And the Stormlands still hasn't been settled at this point. This is how fast it happened that Oris and Rhaenys went south to confront Argolak the Arrogant at the same time Aegon went to confront Heron. And Argolak has already learned what happened to Heron before he comes to grips with Oris and Rhaenys. That's how fast it happens. So uh, he's able to learn what happened to Heron and it affects his strategy <laughs> in terms of his battle disposition. So, so that's one reason to think that maybe some of this was handled later because the border with the Stormland couldn't be fixed yet until that whole, that war, that part of the war was, was, was done. We will detail that in our episode on the battle of the last storm, which is going to be a patrons bonus episode with guest Jim McGeehan, something like a lawyer, our resident battle expert. Yeah. Okay. So, we're, we have a section on the New Iron Islands. We're going to get to it another time, how they're reformed. We probably won't get to that next time. I think we're going to pivot to Visenya and the Vale, which we can do very alliteratively. Uh, Visenya and Vagar invade the Vale, or maybe versus the <laughs> Vale. I'll, I'll work on that. Working title. Yeah. Uh, Sean, people are requesting a cat. The chat requests a cat. Mm-hmm. Now is the time. All right. <laughs> Now is the time. In the meantime, uh, I will get into the outro. Because there wasn't centuries, if not eons, of bad blood between the River Lords and the Targaryens, as there was between themselves and their neighbors, Targaryen rule was almost certainly a fa fantastic development for the common folk. Finally, someone that would keep them in line, and finally, someone strong enough to keep the River Lords from killing each other, which meant, yes, the common folk could farm and 
hang out and do their thing without as much risk of being murdered suddenly or called into a war. If we luck far forward, that seems to stick. It, it held for quite a while. The Riverlands does unite for King Rob, right? They, they're actually more united than they ever were, partly because they got to be at peace with each other for several centuries. That really undid a lot of this long-standing grudge-bearing that was the norm in the Riverlands. Like, when Rob rose, Bracken and Blackwood both supported him. That's something that even Catelyn notes at the time, even as she's disappointed that this is happening. She doesn't want them to name him king. She's smart enough to see that this isn't going to end well. Even despite that, she happens to take note of Bracken and Blackwood rising together. She's like, man, I really have no choice, no chance in stopping this if even Bracken and Blackwood are united on it. But I think part of that unity comes from the conquest, being united and no longer being left to their own devices, which inevitably leads to them fighting. A forced peace kept things, uh, enabled a better future and more unity in, when uh, things changed. A kitty has arrived. This is yet another reason to watch our episodes or at least flip on the video when uh, there's something worth seeing. Sean and I might not be worth seeing, but this cat is. <laughs> yeah. She is. She's the biggest of the three. Yeah, think, so yeah. Is that Cora? No, that's not Cora. This is Toph. Toph, sorry. Yeah, I couldn't see. Yeah, they yeah, look yeah, kind of yeah, similar. Yeah, compare them to, I don't know, a year ago when Sean started showing his kittens off. Yeah. Know. Yeah, uh, yeah I know people are requesting, <laughs> like, Z's needs a cat too. And I'm like, I don't want to wake up our cats. I have Xerxes sleeping next to me, and I don't, yeah. I feel so bad to wake him up. Yeah, maybe next time. We can try to make that more of a regular thing now that we're trying to be visual more often. Maybe the yeah, cats try to bring a cat, will Emily. be seen. She was just sitting right outside the door and then scampered off when I tried to pick her up. <laughs> Our trivia question. Who was the first one to say blood and fire? To say blood and fire out loud. Anyone have any? Were there any guesses? The answer is Osha, of someone all people. Guess, someone oh. guessed Osha. Nice. It is Osha. People also guessed uh, Call Drogo and uh, Danny. And um, I think those were the main guesses. Right on. And yeah, it's Osha, and it comes during the discussion on the comet. Bran asks Osha what she thinks of what Maester Lewin said about the comet, and she kind of scoffs and is like, it means blood and fire, boy, <laughs> and none of it good. You know, like, well, I think we already knew it wasn't good when you said blood and fire, but she wanted to reemphasize. Shea is bringing me a feline delivery. We've got mm. a little Casanova <laughs> coming in. Uh, not that little, really, but he's little for a, a, a little for a being. It's large for a cat. I'm holding it. <laughs> Look at this boy. He's a good boy. Yes, Casanova. So, yeah, the answer was Osha, and we'll have another trivia question for you next week. We'll pick off with Visenya and Vagar and the Vale and that invasion and all the things that involves whether V word's going to sneak in there. We'll have a bunch of trivia questions for you a few days after that. That's right? true. Uh, think about that. Remember that I mentioned it discord September 26th. So that is not our next. We, we will have one more stream before then. So we'll have one more time to remind you, but yeah, trivia. We've done Jackbox games the last few times. This time we're going to do trivia, a song of ice and fire, house of dragon, game of Thrones, all that written by me. So like that'll be a lot Jeopardy of fun. Jeopardy style. Jeopardy like style. Grid. That's right. 
Um, and you'll use a website. It's Discord. sort of Jeopardy style. Like the you question sorta. comes up and everyone gets to answer, not yeah. just the person who's on the clock. But, yeah, but you're, you're yeah, so you get the points uh, yeah. for answering right or not. Yes. Also, wanted to throw out that uh, last week or no, wh- wh- when was that? Was it last week? Yeah, last Monday, last Monday I did a stream with Alt Shift X. People said they liked it a lot in the chat just now. Awesome. That's why I brought it up here. Cool. Yeah. So I, I did a sh- we did a stream with Alt Shift X. The influences of oh. uh, Dune <laughs> on Game of- the influences of Dune on Game of Thrones or and a Song of Ice and Fire rather. We compared Frank Herbert and George R. R. Martin as authors. Compared their career arcs, things that were going on in their childhoods, during their lives, and then just more nitty-gritty in terms of character comparisons. Paul and Danny and Jon Snow and just comparing, like, um, dragons to sandworms and the the, the power of, of prophecy, things like that. There's a lot of comparisons. It's a three-and-a-half-hour live stream over on Alt-Shift-X's channel. So, yeah, check that out if you're so inclined. We had a lot of fun. He's always great to chat with. A link in the chat right now. Thanks as well to anyone who supports us on Patreon. We very much rely on your support. Our sponsors and other income is very inconsistent. The thing that we certainly uh, get the most from is y'all, and that needs to continue for us to continue. So we appreciate those who do support us. And if you were thinking about it, well, we sure could use the help. Our cats depend on you for your support. <laughs> now that's tugging on those heartstrings. I mean, yeah. that's actually very true. Like in general, cats cost money, but Sean particularly has like a, they have like a, 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 a you have a special needs a kitty. special needs cat. Yeah, that's the best term yeah. for it. They need special medication. Like Sean actually have all the people. Yeah. <laughs> I can make that. <laughs> if opinion. Sean wants to travel, they have to like have special a special t- care taken of the cats. It's, it's yeah. a lot. It's a big hassle, actually. It's very sweet of Sean and Rita. It's kidney to... medication, right? Yeah, right? Liver. Liver. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Internal yeah. functions. She's the cutest little cat, and I feel so bad every time I have to give her the medicine. Oh. She's so trusting, and I'm like, ha take this medicine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yep. I bonded with it, actually, though. I, I really do think that uh, oh, yeah. it's it's caused me to bond with her more than I would have said. Thanks as well to Nina for her excellent notes. A lot of great ones today, as usual. Good insights on marriages and political scenarios and and what these different kings and queens and lords might be thinking. It's such a big big ball of wax when you're dealing with unknowns. And I like to think I'm pretty imaginative, but with Nina's help, it just fills things out so much more. So I really appreciate that. She's a big part of, of what we do. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, Bran, and Michael Klarfeld for the music and video intro, and maps, and all the great things that make our show more visual and more musical. So excellent. We, we, it makes us feel like like we're some kind of big studio, even though there's only a few of us. <laughs> we're some big production. Nope, there's just a few of us with laptops and cameras and a big old ring light and obsessive ideas about our favorite book and show series. We'll be back next week with more, my friends. Shout out to y'all. Shout out to, as well, last but not least, our good friend, the Benjineer. You know what to do. Until next time, my friends and fellow Westorians, Velar Reedus.